and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack. And Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff. We were just playing a little Sonic R music for you at the top. Yes, we were. Um, because, you know, last week was our 150th episode. Yeah. We talked about the 25th anniversary of Sonic the Hedgehog. And That's, the 20th anniversary of Nintendo 64. That was a good episode. I had fun yeah. recording that one. It was, it was a very nostalgic episode for, in a lot of ways. It absolutely was. And so I wound up yesterday, while we're playing Sonic R music, because I've got it on the brain, because after we did that podcast, I bought the fucking soundtrack on iTunes. Yeah. And it's great. And then, like, the iTunes one has bonus tracks and stuff. It's great. And um, it's really good. I was listening to it at work, and it was just... I had a smile on my face while I'm doing stuff that doesn't normally make me happy. Yeah. So it was great. Um, but so yesterday, I had the music in my head. I'm like, okay, I have... I know I've played Sonic R, but it was when I was a kid. Yeah. I gotta go back and try to, like, put a, put a face to this game. Mm-hmm. And so I played a little bit of it. That's a shockingly terrible game. Yeah, it's... I mean, <laughs> it's one of those, like, really early 3D games. It's a... Bad racing game. It's a very bad racing game. Oh, it's awful. Like, and, and so I was playing the uh, the GameCube version. It's on the Sonic Gems collection. So, oh yeah, yeah. I had the my GameCube is just set up in my room on my old CRT, okay, so yeah. I can play that pretty easily. So I just pulled that out and, and put that in. And uh, it, it, I'll say this for the game: it looks good. Like it's it's surprising. Like for I think what was it was a Saturn game. Uh, yes, it was on the same It looks side. okay, like for an early 3D game. It does not look like Sonic 3D Blast. Yeah, especially like for like the Saturn, which was a console that wasn't really designed with 3D graphics in mind. No, so it, that's not the problem with the game. The problem with the game is when you start playing it. Like, you're on the menu, it's got that fun options music, which is actually what we were playing at the top of the show. And you're like, oh, this is kind of cool, I get to pick my character, I'm going to be yeah. Sonic, because that's just... You're it's going to be that creepy Tails doll every single time. <laughs> So I'm going to be Sonic, and the race starts, and it's this great music. I think I was playing on the map that has the Back in Time song. Yeah, okay, yeah. Just a great song. I think my favorite one, other than Super Sonic Racing, is probably the Living in the City song. Living in the City is pretty great. Yeah, that song's great. They're all good. But, like, so it's doing that, and then the race starts, and I'm running, and I'm like, oh, God. One, I can barely control Sonic. Mm -hmm. Two... I can't really figure out the momentum or the physics of this thing because yeah. it sort of looks like a Sonic Adventure 2 past like style, you know, Sonic game where you're on kind of a track and you're running and you got rings, but I can't jump really. Yeah, no. I can't like attack the other racers which it feels like I should be able to do based on other Sonic games. Mm-hmm. And I'm running pretty fucking slowly. Like nothing is going all that fast. Yeah. And most of us are on foot. But Amy's in a car, and that's weird. Yeah. And so the whole thing is just like, I didn't even get through a full race. Like, it was so bad. And he just kind of goes wherever he wants. And even if you get into the groove and you're doing okay, it's like you're running through molasses. Yeah. It's one of those, like, Sonic 3D Blast is a good comparison for... There's a awkward transitionary period with the very early 3D Sonic games where they did not figure out how to animate Sonic in a way that made him seem fast in 3D. Because Sonic R and Sonic 3D Blast both have the same thing where it's like the way that Sonic moves he just looks like he's kind of like walking like a normal person. Whereas if you go back to the early 2D Sonic games when you get running really fast they animate it so that his legs are moving so fast they're like a blur. I think the Sonic Adventure games kind of got back to that with the 3D model. It's like but that that middle period where it's just like he just looks like he's jogging. Like it's it's a pretty like leisurely pace. He's like I think he could like it's like maybe twelve minutes a mile or something is what he's going at right now. No. Like I could run faster than Sonic <laughs> in this game. Yeah, he's he's going pretty slow. Yeah. So anyway, that's our continued thoughts on Sonic the Hedgehog. And Sonic R, our and new Sonic continuing R. fascination here at the Weekly Supply. Again, great music though. Like that yeah. that game 
is worth its existence for the soundtrack alone. Yeah, it highlights something that is um, very underappreciated and very lacking in video games in general, which is like uh, original lyrical music yes. for games. It's one of the reasons why I really love the Persona soundtrack mm-hmm. is because some of those songs are so great in having lyrics to songs as a certain element to it. And most games just don't do it. Like Red Dead Redemption is another really good example of a yes. game that uses that really effectively. Yeah, in those key moments that everyone remembers in Red Dead, you have those lyric-based songs. Yeah. That, that are custom made for the game. They're not just. It's not just like you know. In Grand Theft Auto, obviously, you can turn on the radio, but that's very different. Yes, and I, I can't wait for the Doom sequel when they add in like a screamo heavy metal He's guy. Like, da, 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 rip that demon's head off! <laughs> like yeah, just <laughs> they get the guy who wrote the lyrics to Pumpkin Hill, yeah, and he's exactly. singing about like just screaming. Yeah, you're in the foundry. <laughs> Welcome to the foundry. Going to get those collectibles. I don't know where I am. Where's that damn Doom doll? <laughs> I would pay good money for a DLC pack that did that music on top of the existing levels yeah. in Doom 2016. That I mean, so you great. could just do that on your own. You could just play the game and sing narrating your own actions, <laughs> and it's the same basic effect. You will come out with a similar, if not higher quality song than the Knuckle Raps in Sonic Adventure 2. All right. Well, enough about last week's topic. What are we talking about this week? I have no fucking clue. What are we talking about this week, Jonathan? I'm not sure myself. We, uh, I really wanted to make sure we got an episode out this week because I had some odds and ends to talk about. And I just felt like we got momentum. We just did episode 150. I don't want to go off for a week after episode 150. That's like yeah. a milestone. So, um, And because I feel like in the weeks to come, we're going to have more topics that I have in mind, which yeah. I haven't talked to you about yet, but we'll get to that. Um, so our main topic this week, and I don't. this will probably be a shorter episode. This will not be four and a half hours. Hey, God help don't, us. Don't make promises. You know you can't keep them, Jonathan. Okay. Um, our main topic this week is going to be mid-year thoughts. So it is July 3rd as we record this. You'll be hearing this on July 4th, our Independence Day podcast. Yeah, which has nothing to do with Independence Day. No, not really. Because neither of us really give a shit about that movie, so. No, not at all. Yeah, no. And, I, and America didn't give a shit about the sequel. <laughs> no, yeah. No, Resoundingly did not give a shit about that sequel. Yeah. Finding Dory just swam right past it. You know, now Roland Emmerich is to go back and make the Godzilla sequel he always wanted to. Yes, absolutely. It, it got outgrossed this weekend by the Purge election year. <laughs> Fucking, that's right. They keep that's, making those. Is that the third Purge the movie? The third Purge yeah, movie. Man. Thurge. <laughs> and they're getting real actors in them at this point. Like, you know, I shouldn't say that. The first movie had like Lena Headey and Ethan Hawke. So they've somehow they've gotten real actors in all of these. Yeah, I mean, horror movies somehow. Like tend to attract like a one or two pretty decent actors, and I don't get it because they don't have that much of a budget. Like, what are they? Maybe the budget just goes to the actors. That's totally possible. That's that is actually probably completely true. Yeah. So oh, yeah. anyway, um, that's movies. Anyway, so our our main topic is going to be mid year thoughts. It's the middle of the year. We're into July. We're halfway through. What has twenty sixteen been like? Well, in the larger world, 2016 has been an absolutely awful year. Yeah, there's like, that's a good thing to sort of note here. We're not going to be talking about the state of the world or like yeah. the state of American politics, the state of United Kingdom politics in 2016, because that's a subject we're not really qualified to tackle, and I don't want to come no. over this podcast super depressed. Yeah, so the world at large, 2016 has been uh, resoundingly shitty. Yeah. In media, it's been pretty good. We've had a fun year talking about stuff. Yeah, I mean, video games in particular are like continuing that massive upswing we got from 2015. The momentum is strong. Absolutely. So that's what we're going to be talking about when we talk about 2016 in review. Just to look at what are the small positives of this year on the whole. Yeah. If you get outside of media, uh, 
Very I, scary. I mean, th- th- this, this is something for some, like, poli-sci major to write a big essay about, but, like, I wonder if there's some correlation between shitty things going on in the real world and really great escapist entertainment off on the corner just being like, you read the news and you're like, well, shit, like, I am, like, I am an immigrant in the UK, and now my life might be completely fucked, but hey, I get to play Doom. So that's okay. It's it's true. The last time we had a year for video games this good, George W. Bush was president. Yeah. So, so you know, food for thought. Yeah. Food for thought. <laughs> anyway, let's go ahead and move on, though. A couple of uh, little mini topics and pieces of discussion before we get into that. And actually, before we get into our random stuff, I want to hit the few pieces of news we have. All right. So first off, the Batman Arkham Collection, which we talked about before, mm-hmm. the HD remasters, yeah. indefinitely delayed. Yeah. Which I yeah, thought was kind of interesting because we're weird. so close to it and usually you don't hear about remasters just getting like, yeah, we don't know when we're going to be ready with this. Yeah, I saw some like comparison videos a while ago with the trailer that they released that seemed to indicate that the remaster, at least by that trailer, was not as remastery as maybe people would yeah. like. So I, I have to suspect that has something to do with it. Yeah, it's weird and it's too bad. I would love to play that sooner rather than later, but... Oh, well, my hope is that if it's being delayed, they delay it into 2017, because there's no way I have time for it in yeah, the back no, half of this yeah, year. I'm not going to spend my time this year playing like old games remastered, because it's just, I can't. And I, and I want to some of these. Like by The other one, big piece of news this week, though, was we also finally, this has been like the worst kept secret for like a year now, but Bioshock the Collection is coming yeah. out. So Bioshock 1, 2, and Infinite for PS4 and Xbox One. Very exciting. I'm so glad these are coming to these platforms because I think they're great and they should be archived. And I especially want to play Bioshock 1 and Infinite again. I've actually never played 2. I've never played 2 either, so that's actually kind of the one I'm most curious about. Yeah, and it's got all the DLC, which I really never played for Infinite. I never played, like, Burial Under the Sea or whatever it is. Yeah, I never did those either. Yeah, so it might be fun to check some of those out. But it comes out September 13th, and September is a horrendously busy month yeah, for games. Yeah, no, that's, I'm not going to have time to go back and replay Bioshock 1. Cause... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get it at some point, but just, it'll have to wait for a more uh, fallow yeah. period. So anyway. I'm just really looking forward to when Bioshock 1 co- is remastered and re-released, all the think pieces that are going to come out that are, one, talking about, like, oh, Bioshock 2 is an underrated gem, and then also, now we get to talk about ludonarrative dissonance all over again, because Bioshock 1 is the game that, like, Initiated the blog post that that invented the term ludonarrative dissonance. Yes. So we get to, you get to have those again. So that'll yes. be fun. But uh, it's just kind of funny because these were both collections that had been rumored forever, finally got confirmed, and then the Batman one is just like, oh, we got no idea, guys. Yeah. So oh well. Hopefully they put out a good product in the end. My uh, I'm finally gonna get my brother to play those fucking games because but he's now, never played them. He's never played the Batman games, huh. and he's got uh, a gaming PC now, and there was a Steam sale, and they were all five bucks. So. Not Arkham Knight, but I'm telling him, just don't play that on PC. I've got it on Xbox. Don't, sure, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't try. Don't bother. Yeah, that's, I know a, it's, that's a whole can of worms. Yeah, the other ones apparently work fine. So, yeah. anyway, he's finally going to play those. Because I know he would love those fucking games. Yeah, of Anyone course. who likes Batman should love those fucking games. Even people who don't really like Batman would probably love those games. Yeah. They're just really good games. They're absolutely really good games. And this is a good time to play them, so... Anyway, there's that. Um, Bioshock, so I talked about that. And then the only other real piece of news this week, other than the Final Fantasy VII Monopoly set, which I thought was funny. And <laughs> I it didn't shows even how, see that. Oh, and this was, I was only mentioning because it, it shows you how s- slow a period of gaming news we're in. Every fucking gaming website was reporting on the Final Fantasy VII Monopoly set because oh, they had nothing else to talk about. And I will say, if I was going to buy a gaming-themed Monopoly set, that would be a fun one to do. But also, I, I don't know you if know, it's... Don't... 
don't play Monopoly. It's done. We're, we're, we as a culture, we should be over Monopoly by now. It's a shitty board game. You get, play something else. All right. Um, the only other thing was, and I wanted to talk about this a little because it's officially starting to worry me. Sean, there was another Star Trek Beyond trailer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. With Rihanna's Sledgehammer, her new hit single. I yeah, guess. this is the third trailer for that movie that still looks like it's a trailer for a totally different movie than the other two. Why can't they cut a good trailer for this movie? I don't know. I, I, I feel like I at least have, was like able to, by like taking my knowledge of the first two trailers and the like stuff you see in this trailer, but like the way they cut it does not put emphasis on, I felt like I was able to kind of construct for myself an idea of what the movie is about. Yeah. But like none of the trailers, it felt like were actually like indicating what the plot or the setup for the movie was. But I was able to like, okay, so that's that alien lady. Like she was in these shots of those other trailers I remember. So it's like, that must be the kind of role she has in this movie. Okay. It's like, why don't you just show me the basic setup for the fucking film? Especially because, and tell me if this is your thought too, from what I've pieced together, it looks like the idea for the movie is it's just an episode of Star Trek. They get yeah. lost on an alien planet, and they have to find their way out, and there's a villain. Like, And it's exactly what I want out of it, honestly. I just mm-hmm. want an episode of Star Trek with a bigger budget, and that's what they're doing, it seems. Is that kind of what you're getting out of it? Yeah, that, that is sort of like, yeah, the movie I've constructed from the pieces of the trailers that are like the most coherent. And when you ignore some of like the overdramatic monologuing that Kirk does in this trailer, and like kind of like... Don't take this, like they've all like the weird actiony stuff, and don't try to assume that that's indicative of like the tone of the movie itself. I do feel like it's sort of a big Star Trek episode. Yeah, especially because the only action bits they've shown are the same in all three. Exactly. So I don't think that's the whole movie, which yeah. is good. But it's like I am looking forward to this movie. I really like the J.J. Abrams movies. I like Star Trek in general, of course, and I like this cast. Yeah, so this I'm... cast is so fantastic that that's actually the thing. I most want more movies from is I just want to see more of this cast playing these characters. Absolutely. In particular, I want to see more Bones. Absolutely. That's, that's what I'm really in here for. And he has been in the trailers a good amount, which yeah. is nice. But it it's points to a larger problem, though, that I, I wanted to talk about. And I even thought about making this our topic this week, but I didn't know how to like even phrase it. Yeah. What is the issue? And it's been a recent thing in movies mm-hmm. with good movies or bad movies. doesn't even really matter. But big movies having awful trailers. Yeah. I th- Why it is, is this a, a thing? I think it's. I think there's a couple of things that, that like, obviously, we all recognize that movie trailers um, go with certain trends, and you have like eras of movie trailers. And so it's like at the beginning of like, like in the late '90s and like early 21st century, we had a lot of like in the in a world where like the trailer movie guy, and like I actually was sort of sad the other day when I was thinking about. For kids born probably around like 2003, 2004 and later, the movie trailer dude is not going to be a thing that they recognize as like a pop culture thing. Like it'll be some weird old thing that like we make jokes about. It'll be like, why do you keep on doing that weird voice? Like that's not, no trailer is ever cut like that. That's just crazy. So that was old trailers. Then, I think there's probably like an intermediary period that I don't really remember. But then the one that we all remember is the Inception trailer that that fucking took the world by storm for years and years and years and eventually became the single most obnoxious thing you could possibly imagine although even when it was obnoxious and overused it still is a good thing for a trailer like it's a very effective dramatic element for a trailer to have it lends a really strong sense of pacing so it's like every video game trailer every movie trailer had that 
and we have moved into this new era where everything is either like like for this one it was that Rihanna song Rihanna song or a lot of times it'll be like a really shitty like soulful cover of an old like 80s pop song or something and that's been the new trend is that that is the 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 thematic thing that ties your trailer together is whatever this song is and that's most trailers i feel today have moved towards that and like E3 was an indicative point of that because basically every single trailer at E3 did that so I think that's where we are, and I think that those trailers take a lot more skill to cut together than, like, dramatic thing happening, cut to black, dramatic thing happening, cut to black, dramatic thing happening, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's so, that's, anyone could cut that fucking trailer together and make it seem cool. It takes a lot of skill to actually cut well to, like, whatever the song is, you know? Exactly. But it is a thing this year that's been so weird, where yeah. I feel like, okay, Batman v Superman is a great example for this because it had nothing but awful trailers. Yeah. And it's an awful movie, obviously. You could still cut a good trailer for it, I think. Yeah, no, and, I mean, you can cut a good trailer for anything. And that's how trailers work. Absolutely, and that's my point. And in fact, an example for this was when they put out the trailer for the extended cut DVD that's out now of mm -hmm. Batman v Superman. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that, but it's actually a really good trailer for that yeah, movie. Yeah, I saw it, yeah. And it's kind of funny. It's like, well, why didn't you just cut that mm -hmm. as your trailer? Like, that... It's, it sells a movie that does not exist, uh -huh. but it's like, it's marketing. Like, it's good marketing. And so I don't get that. And so the other big offenders this year, I think, are Star Trek Beyond. Just awful trailers. Yeah. And the Ghostbusters movie. And I, yeah. I don't want to wade into the Ghostbusters controversy too much. To sum it up, and the controversy is mostly ridiculous. Yeah. I wish people would shut up about it. It's just a movie. And the movie's I'm, almost out. I'm so happy the yes, movie's almost me out. me too. Because we can just get it like... Forget about the controversy. Yes. And I am looking forward to the movie. I want to put that up out front. I like everybody working on that movie. Paul Feig is a really smart guy, a really talented director. I love Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig and those other actresses. I think it could be a really good movie. Yeah. That is a separate thing from my thoughts on the trailers. Yeah. I do think the trailers have been awful, and I'm kind of done forgiving them. And I do think... There is this wide chasm of people who just hate the movie and they're not going to say a single good thing about it before it's even out, and that's stupid. Yeah. But then I think there are people on the complete other end who are kind of ignoring that those trailers are bad trailers. Yeah. Like, if there's things you like about them, like, oh, I think Melissa McCarthy looks cool in this, that's fine. I think she does, too. But that's different than, is that a well-cut trailer? And no, because no, yeah. each one of them, honestly, I think the first one they did was the best. And then they've gotten worse and worse because... But also, like, the first one they did was a trailer for a movie that is not the movie that... Like, because the first one they did was the one that, like, implied that this is taking place, like, 30 years after the first Ghostbusters. Which is not true. And even yeah. Melissa McCarthy was on, I think, like, I don't know, Ellen DeGeneres or something and said, Yeah, I don't... That's not our movie. I don't yeah. get it. So even the actors are saying these trailers are bad. And it's because, really, it's just... I'm not getting a sense of what the movie is. Like, I... That first trailer was leaning so hard on the iconography that it didn't sell the new stuff. Yeah. Other trailers have leaned so hard on just kind of laugh lines that are out of context so they're not funny. I'm not saying they can't be funny yeah. in the movie, but out of con humor relies so much on context. Yeah. And so then it's like, well, but now I'm not really getting a sense for who these characters are, how it is Ghostbusters. Like, it's, it's so muddled. And all I really want out of a trailer is a little bit about... These characters, like where they are at the start of the movie, why they decide to yeah. become Ghostbusters, and then maybe a little bit of action or something or a, a laugh line. And I don't know. It seems really muddled to me. And part of that is, as you say, the musical choices have been rough in those trailers. Yeah. And then as you say, that, that creates this, this pressure because you have to edit well if you're editing the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's, I think with the Ghostbusters thing, it's also important to keep in mind that comedy trailers are typically awful. Yes. Like, because that's... 
because in, in the one movie I can think of in recent times that had a trailer that was a comedy that I thought was a really good trailer was Zootopia, which yes. had that. Whose trailer was basically uh, probably like because I haven't actually watched the movie yet. I want to at some point. But so I, I imagine this bit was cut down to make it tighter. But it was basically just like this bit of her and the of the rabbit lady and the fox guy mm-hmm. going to like the DMV or whatever and talking to this sloth that was going super slow. And that was like it was just that bit, like it was a whole bit. And that was the trailer was just that joke. Yes. And that was a really good comedy trailer because you kept all the context for the joke. It was just a funny bit. And that was all the trailer was, and that like that did more to sell me on that movie. That's like normally I would never even consider really going to the theater for that kind of movie because that's not the movie like a kind of movie I go to the theater for. I was really close to just being like, I should just fuck it. I should just go see that. And that that trailer was really funny. And that movie made a billion fucking dollars. And yeah. it's because they put that trailer in front of Star Wars, and everybody who saw Star Wars wanted to go see that movie. Yeah, because it's a really good bit. So if you want to sell a comedy movie. Make a funny trailer, and a funny trailer is not a trailer that throws every single joke at you as quickly as possible. A funny trailer is one that just does one bit, because most comedy movies are built off of a series of skits. Like, that is what most comedy films are, and it's worked really well, but if you want that to work, it's not like a, like, the humor in those films are not built off of, like, a one, like, a setup and then a punchline right after, and it's just, like, like a funny joke that you read on, like, a popsicle stick. It's no. a whole fucking like scenario that they set up with, and a lot of the humor comes naturally from the characters. So you need time to build that out. But most comedy trailers are not cut that way. No, but it's this. It is this as you, you know. It's an identity thing. If you're cutting a comedy trailer, you should know what you're cutting. If you're cutting a Star Trek trailer, you should know what you're cutting. Yeah. Those Star Trek ones, back to kind of the first point, really confuse me because I look at them and I don't know who they're for. They're not for Star Trek fans, clearly, yeah. because Star Trek fans don't go to a Star Trek movie for explosion, 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 explosion. Yeah. Rihanna. Nothing against Rihanna. I mean, yeah, no, but... I, I, I am going to a Star Trek movie for Rihanna, and I've been very disappointed up until now. <laughs> I'm hoping that Star Trek Beyond is going to be the first good Star Trek movie for that's, me. That's my one complaint about Wrath of Khan. It has no... <laughs> no Rihanna! She wasn't alive, I don't think, when that movie came out. Probably not. But, but fuck it. I, you know, if this is supposed to be a forward-looking franchise, goddammit, like... It's just set in the future where Rihanna should have already existed, so they should be able to put her movie in. Like, diegetically in the movie, Rihanna's movie, their music should re- exist, so it should have been in the movie. Exactly. How, how good would the scene where Khan, like, you know, swears revenge on Kirk yeah. be if Kirk just turned up some Rihanna on the ship yeah. and was like, drown him out? Yeah, no, that's how that scene should have gone. We all know it. We all know it. Absolutely. So anyway, yeah, but it's because they're not for Star Trek fans. I don't think they're really for general movie fans because it's just the generic explosion action trailers, those never lead to successful movies. Yeah, no. Ever. Like, and this is like a year where we are seeing that more than ever where there are a huge number of, if not, like there are a huge number of bombs, but then also movies that are disappointing at the theater. And I think it's because like Hollywood has been relying on that to sell its movies for way too long. And I think audiences, like, like with Independence Day is the most recent example. It's like audiences are figuring that shit out and are not going to keep on going to these shitty movies with shitty trailers. And I actually think the marketing really matters this year because if you look at the number of bombs this year, most of them are movies that have had really bad marketing. And the movies that have been hits, I mean, Deadpool is the most obvious example because it had marketing that got people into the theater in horrifying droves. But, you know, Zootopia, Deadpool, Civil War... Uh, Finding Dory, things like that. That just I, I don't. I think the Finding Dory, the marketing was just incidental. That just sold itself. Jungle Book, but Jungle Book had yeah. Because as someone who went to New York City around the time that the movie was about to come out, there was a lot of advertising for Jungle Book in New York yeah. City. 
but and and I didn't think the Jungle Book trailers were great, but they weren't bad. That yeah, but but like they like made a big marketing push for the movie yeah. at the very least, right? But then you've got all these movies that are flopping, like Independence Day. That it's not like they didn't make a push, but that push was here's the movie you saw 20 years ago without Will Smith. Yeah, and I don't think anyone cared. No, obviously but, not. Yeah, so stuff like that just isn't doing well, and it does make me worry about Star Trek Beyond because. I, it's funny because when you go back to that first J.J. Abrams movie, like, say what you will about J.J. Abrams and his trailer tendencies with the holding back and all that. Yeah. He sells movies well. He mm-hmm. gets people interested and they get into the theater. I feel like they need to have J.J. come in and just be like, what would you have us do with a trailer for this movie? And he's like, okay, let me tell you, because my last movie made a lot of money. Yeah. So, anyway, it's too bad. I hope the movie does well because I want Star Trek to be a thing. Uh-huh, and I hope yeah. the movie's good and all that. But just all these movies. Like, I also wonder, like, I thought at the beginning of this year that Ghostbusters movie was a automatic home run. I thought that movie's going to make a billion dollars or something. Yeah. And now I'm kind of wondering, maybe it's just going to be kind of a muted reception. Like, I'm sure it'll do okay. But I feel like the controversy has now turned into apathy in some ways. Yeah, I feel those, that way as well. Especially because they keep putting out trailers. The trailers are not good. And it would almost be like, maybe just hold back. And not over-market it and just let word of mouth or something take it. Yeah. You know? Like, I feel like with that Ghostbusters movie, if they had held back and not shown a trailer for that movie until, like, a couple of weeks before it launched, it would have made, like, $500 billion. (laughs) Because it's just, like... Because the problem is that that controversy happened months ago, around the time the first trailer dropped, and it just, like, burned really hot for, like, a month. And then, like you said, I feel like it simmered down to, like... Everyone involved is like, I just fucking don't give a shit anymore because we're just exhausted by the hundred billion articles written on like the, every single side. Yes. Just like everything you've seen about it is like, I just don't even fucking care anymore. I just don't want to think about this movie anymore because it's too tiring to even engage with it. Whereas if it had been like a week before the movie came out and everyone was just pissed, it's like I'm like the people who are like like really championing the the idea and the philosophy behind uh, making a female Ghostbusters movie would obviously be like fucking yeah, let's go see this. And then all the people that are just like I hate what they're doing with Ghostbusters would have just hate watched that movie and wouldn't have even cared. They're just like I have to see this movie to fuel this like intense hate I have inside of me. But now I don't think those people are going to try to feel that hate anymore. No. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's a weird scenario. So that's bad movie trailers for you. Yeah. It's, it a, it's a weird topic that has come up a lot this year. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move on. Sean, what have you been up to lately? Anything to talk about? Not much. I've been, I've been weirdly, I've been going back and watching some old Godzilla movies. That's how I've been spending some of my spare time. And then the main reason, one of the main reasons I have been is that there have been a couple of recent um, Blu-ray releases of old Godzilla movies that, like, I have some of them on DVD, some of them, like, King Kong vs. Godzilla finally, finally got a fucking, like, home video release that you can just go buy that isn't, like, $300, so I have that coming, like, in a couple of days now. I'm really excited because I the only version of that movie I could have, like, owned that I can, like, reasonably access is the old shitty VHS tape, so... I don't want to break out a VCR when I want to watch King Kong vs. Godzilla. So I'm getting the Blu-ray for that. Godzilla 2000 is finally getting a release that has fucking the Japanese audio track on it, which that has been hard to find for a very long time. So that, like, seeing some of those releases coming out has gotten me spurred up to be like, eh, I'm going to watch some old Godzilla movies. So I've been doing that. And then I've also been going back now that I've, I've finished Gravity Rush because I was near the end of the last time we did the podcast. That game's fucking awesome. I'm really excited for Gravity Rush 2 now. And I, after I finished it, I went back and I watched a bunch of the stuff that they showed at E3. And that game looks really awesome. I, have you watched any of the... Not really. Yeah. Because I, like, I just watched a fairly, like, probably like a 10 minute long kind of like gameplay demo that had Shuhei Yoshida sitting in on it. 
And that was just like, just watching that game in motion was kind of amazing. Yeah. It's a thing where I know I'm going to play that game. Yeah. And I was on board with that before they even, you know, had shown anything from Gravity Rush 2. So it's almost like Persona 5. They also showed some Persona 5 stuff and I didn't watch any of it. Yeah, I, I stayed away from the Persona 5 one. I just want to play the game. I'm going to be there day one either way. But it's uh, it's good to hear that it's, it looks awesome. Yeah, it's just like, it just looks like the generational leap I mean, to like the big leap to power to the PS4. They have made very good use of that based on the gameplay stuff I've seen. So I'm really excited for Gravity Rush 2. Then I have also been going back in the, the the calm before the storm, before we hit August, where like shit really kicks into high gear. I've started playing Dishonored Definitive Edition, which is a game I've, I've been meaning to get to for ever since it came out in like 2012 or whenever that game originally released. So I'm playing that on the PS4, and it's it's really good. Like It's a game that it took me a while to warm up to because that kind of first-person stealth like Deus Exe, very open kind of gameplay is not generally my cup of tea, but I think the thing is with this game, it really clicked for me when I started um, really kind of like being able to read the level design really well, and the level design in that game is just absolutely superb, and it's like the real star of that game is that the levels are immaculately crafted, so I've just been having a huge amount of fun playing that and going around and being a stealthy like i've been avoiding killing people as much as possible every once in a while there's someone i'm just like hey you're an asshole i'm gonna stick a knife in your neck but most people i will incapacitate or just straight up sneak around and i think the game gives you a lot of really engaging and fun tools to enable that kind of like not completely pacifist play style but like a closer to that than i'm just going to like murder everyone in the streets kind of way that i play most games absolutely my brother really loves that game yeah he played it on the 360 is where he would have originally yeah. played it. And then he's played it on the Xbox One, and he's also now has it on PC. I know he on the 360 got all the achievements and everything too, which uh, required playing it a couple times. But Yeah, really... I mean, it, and it is the kind of game that the way it's designed, it really heavily rewards multiple playthroughs. So I can totally see that's what he said, someone so. going back through it a whole bunch. Like, yeah. I might play it a couple of times, I don't know. Absolutely, and it's the kind of game that I've sensed that has not had, like, huge, massive, earth-shattering success. But the people who love it really love it, and that's the kind of fan base you can build a franchise on yeah. really well. And so I'm glad they're doing Dishonored 2, and it sounds like everything from that looks really cool. And mm-hmm. so, and it's it's nice to have these remasters out there to make it easy to play. <laughs> for yeah, us now. yeah. In lieu of the actual backwards fucking compatibility. <laughs> yeah, you know. But this is the game. Like, it's nice for me because it's a game I never owned in the first place, right, and now right. I get this nice like. You get all the DLC, and from what I understand, like one of the DLCs is really, really good. Yeah. So I'm also I'm excited to get to that. Yeah, I remember that when that came out. My brother was super excited for that and loved it. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's an honor. It's a good game. I um, I'm gonna get to the games I've played in a minute. Okay. But I have been continuing my adventures with Dragon Ball Z. I talked about last week. Yeah. Where I started rewatching the series. I have kept my momentum up and even up the ante a little bit because I am through episode 80 of the series. Just finished this morning. Um, so that means I've also watched the first three movies and the first TV special, which is the Bardock special. Yeah. That is a phenomenal 45 minutes of animation. Yeah, the two TV specials that I did are fucking awesome. And the Bardock one is especially notable because, I, I, if you know the history behind it, that was completely done by the anime team. Uh, Kira Toriyama uh, contributed a couple of character designs, as I understand it, but he was mostly very hands-off. And when he saw it, he loved it so much, and he's explained this in so many interviews since then, that because he thought this is something I would never have written. It's so much darker. It's so much more existential in some weird yeah. ways. Um, but that's why he was so impressed. And so he brought Bardock back into the manga where he was currently writing it, which is where Goku is fighting Frieza. 
and there's a reference there. So that reference to Bardock in the canonical manga is because he liked the anime so much, and I think that's the only time there's directly something from the anime that went back into the manga. Yeah. There's other things, like, obviously he said he always wrote Goku with Masako Nozawa's voice, uh-huh. but that's a different kind of thing, yeah. you know? He it's... didn't go back and was like, that Garlic Junior saga was so good, <laughs> I'm just going to do my version of it. Thank God. No, uh, I'm going to be hitting that soonish. Do you mean be... you're going to be skipping that pretty soon? I'm gonna, I'm gonna try my best. You're going to get like two episodes in. We're gonna <laughs> see. You're like, fuck this. Hit the eject button as soon as possible. No, but um, uh, you know, I'm through eighty, so I'm into the the fight with Frieza has begun. Goku is still in his little medical pod because yeah, that's he always he always is. That's he always is. It is funny how much those first two sagas of the Dragon Ball Z series rely on Goku being out of commission. Yeah, it's a pretty repeated event. Yes, over and over, and then he mostly gets away from that in the the Boo and the Cell stuff. Yeah, but um, that those also become so much more kind of ensemble heavy and whatnot. It doesn't matter as much. I mean, Goku's dead for half of the Boo stuff. Yeah. So. Anyway, um, what was I say? So it's really good. I'm at a part in the series I really love because Piccolo just came back to life. Piccolo's my favorite fucking character. Yeah, and then he gets to kick Frieza's ass for like an episode and then, then he gets taken out. It happens, but it's cool yeah. while it lasts. So I'm really loving this. I love this whole stretch of the series. Um, the Namek stuff, I think, gets a bad rap for filler because, honestly, of what happens when you get into the Goku versus Frieza stuff. Yeah. Up to that point, it's they're pretty good about it. Like, there is some stupid stuff. There's the two-episode Bulma versus the Crab thing. Oh, right. That is interminable. I'm not defending that. But that's, you know, two episodes out of 40. The other, And there's the fake Namek stuff at the beginning. But the actual meat of it, they're pretty good about it. And I think that is such a tightly written stuff on the manga side. Yeah. And then as they adapt it into the anime where you get those great fucking performances with Ryo Horikawa's Vegeta just kind of going insane over the course of those episodes. Yeah. And having these highs and lows as he never really becomes a hero. He's a villain through all of that. He's not even really an anti-hero. Yeah. But he's weirdly on the side of the, the angels in this case. So it's a very interesting dynamic. His just mad quest to try to get all the Dragon Balls is amazing. Like Because it, it is just like... Because shit keeps on piling up after piling up, piling up, piling up. And like the Ginyu Force comes in and Frieza shows up. And then, like, eventually they, like, Vegeta's taking a nap and they go to try to make them wish. It's like, you just, you really start to feel for him at some point. It's like, man. You do. Like, because you're an asshole, but you're not, like, Frieza asshole. You know, you're not quite at that level. And Frieza is so good. We've talked about it many times. Ryu Sinakao, who plays Frieza, oh my god, he's great. Yeah. I love it so much. And especially now I'm into the part where he starts to lose his shit. Mm -hmm. And he's so good at that. Yeah. It's so great. I love all of it. Um... It's been having so much fun watching this. And I, I just, the Namek stuff I naturally kind of just breeze through because it is so exciting. Uh-huh. That even if you get little moments of filler here and there, it's like, okay, I know this story very well, but I still, the tension is so well done that I want to see what happens next. Like the yeah. episode, as you were talking about, where they get the Dragon Balls and they're making the wish well, Vegeta is napping like five feet away and Frieza is on his way to kill them. Mm-hmm. That's a great, just well executed piece of tension. Yeah. And so I love all of that. Um, it's been so much fun to watch. Um, a lot of good animation in the Namek stuff. They get into some bad animation days there too, but I like the general color palette mm-hmm. of that part of the series. Um, and again, that Bardock special, oh my god, that's good. It's really, really good. And I always kind of forget when I go back to it just how dark it is because they don't attempt to make Bardock a hero. No, he is yeah. the protagonist, but he is a bad guy, and really throughout that special he has been cursed and he's being punished 
with this knowledge of the future that makes him realize how worthless he is, basically. Yeah. And that his son is what's going to be remembered about him. And it's just so well done. And then it has maybe my favorite vocal delivery in the entire Dragon Ball saga, which is when Frieza is destroying planet Vegeta and he is yelling, Zaban-san! Dodoria-san! And he's yeah. talking about the fireworks. He's like, look at the beautiful fireworks! Oh! Yeah. It's such a... It's like spine-tingling. And they even at one point in the anime do a flashback to that scene, I think just so they can show it again. Yeah. Because that vocal delivery is just... Oh, just chills down your back. Yeah. I, I wish they would go back and redub that special so current English Frieza could do that. Special. Yeah, no, that would be fucking so awesome. Because he's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I've been having so much fun watching these. Movie three of Dragon Ball Z, which is the uh, Tree of Might movie. That's a great movie. That's, yeah, it is. That's, yeah. That's a really good... I mean, great. I'm not saying like it's the Godfather. I'm saying... Yeah, but for like the Dragon Ball Z movies. If yeah. If you're a fan of Dragon Ball Z, that is a yeah. really fun one to watch. It's good. It's just got really good animation, like the tree that's like overtaking the earth. Yeah. It's got this great kind of dark atmosphere. And Tullus is a really interesting villain as kind of evil Goku. Yeah. And Masako Nozawa, it's, it's weird having her do that, but she's really good at it. Yeah. It's that and Bardock. She's good at doing like evil variations on Goku. And again, it shouldn't work, but it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just remember Tree of Might having a lot of like really, really good fights as yeah. well. Like, I mean, that's one of the things I appreciate about the pre- Super Saiyan movies is like there's something really compelling about that when like people like like when that weird area of power where it's like they're a lot more powerful than the, the characters were in Dragon Ball but like they can't just like fly without thinking about it all the time the way they do in most Dragon Ball Z you know right. like flying is still something that it's like you have to the Goku has to put a little bit of effort into and I like that period of like, too. the power levels for the characters. It creates for some really compelling fight sequences. It absolutely does. And I, I think some of the later movies are very good despite that. And some of them totally succumb to it. Like, I don't like that first Broly movie much at all because it's exactly the problem you're describing. Yeah. It's 80 minutes of really overpowered people fighting overpowered. And it's and it's weird because that's not what the, the manga really ever is. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't succumb to that, really. It finds interesting ways around it. And then the movies don't don't have that all the time. Yeah. So. I mean, it's actually like this, this just because I've been watching those old Godzilla movies. It's something that's occurred to me. But it's like you can tell, like a really bad Godzilla fight scene is and a really bad drag, Dragon Ball Z fight scene are very similar because both of them just rely on people using power blasts all the time. Yes. So it's like a really bad Godzilla fight scene is just Godzilla using his atomic breath all the time and just gets like it's just boring. And it's the same thing with like a lot of the Dragon Balls, later Dragon Ball Z movies are just like, I'm just going to use Kamehameha over and over and over and over again. And that's like the whole fight. It's like, yeah. no, I want to see some creative like martial arts stuff. I want to see Godzilla just like fucking judo slam a motherfucker. <laughs> like, that's like, like that's what I'm really here for. I want to see him throw Rodan into a building, not just hit Rodan with his fire breath. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I'm having fun with Dragon Ball Z. I've, I'm keeping the momentum up. I'm sure I will be able to keep it up through the end of the Frieza stuff. And, and then, then I will can, have the yeah. thought of Trunks to keep me going. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, that, is, that is probably the most damning thing about trying to rewatch Dragon Ball Z and hitting the Garlic Jr. Saga. Is not only is that just ungodly boring, but it's like you know that right after that is what m- might be one of the best sections in all of Dragon Ball Z, which is when Trunks first shows up yes. and fights uh, Mecha Frieza. Absolutely. Like, that's, that's just an unbelievable episode. It is. And... The 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 thing to remember is the only reason all that stuff gets to be as good and tight as it is is because they had the buffer of the garlic ginger yeah, stuff. That's true. It's yeah. a necessary evil. Or they could have just like taken six months off or something. But 
Take that up with Toei. I I always feel bad for the animators in these cases because, of course, it's they would like to do that. Yeah, yeah, obviously. (laughs) But it's yeah, Toei, you got to keep the keep the money train going. Absolutely. So anyway, but it's been fun to watch, and maybe I'll just give some periodic updates on my progress. Dragon Ball Z, it's really good. It's yeah. If you hadn't heard, yeah, it's 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 an anime that people like. Yeah. Maybe too much in some cases. Never too much. Never too much. Never too much. Um, I just can't wait when I get to the end of Z and I'm all hyped and try to go through GT and see how yeah, far I can get in that. I hit that too, and then yeah. I got like I got to the end of the baby stuff and I was like, okay, I can't. I'm I'm done. You're I'm tapping exhausted. out. I'm exhausted by this. Like I had just enough momentum where it's like I've never seen the entire baby arc through in its entirety. So it's like I had enough momentum to be like, well, I'll at least watch all of these in order because I've never done that before. And I was like. I got like to the Super 17 stuff. I'm like, okay, no, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I can't. I can't do this. I've got better stuff to fucking watch. Have you ever watched the very end of GT? Uh, yes, I have. I like that. Yeah, that's good. But it's nice. anyway, um, there is a lot of bad in the middle, though. Yeah. Even though, even though there are pieces of GT I like so much, and I wish it could have been better. <laughs> Yeah, like early GT is actually pretty okay. Like I, I like because I like Pan a lot. Yeah, Pan's really good. I like Goku Trunks and Pan flying yeah. across the universe, just having fun adventures. Yeah. So when it tries to copy the like really insane Frieza stuff with uh, babies, where it's just like, okay, I can't, I can't, yeah. I can't do this. Japan, it's so rushed. Japan couldn't either. I mean, yeah. that's an amazing story because like Dragon Ball into Dragon Ball Z, that was like ten solid years of anime. It was never outside the top ten anime in Japan. Yeah, and then it plummeted in GT because everyone just recognized it's over. Like the, the the story ended, and this is not what we needed. And it just and that GT lasted about a year, and that was it. Yeah. So it's kind of and now it's back in full force. And Dragon Ball Super is about to overcome GT in terms of episodes. Oh yeah, which I think is crazy. Like. It well, it, it feels like Dragon Ball Super is kind of taking its time with it in a way that, like, one of the, my main issues with Dragon Ball GT is that it feels like it's trying to replicate these, like, really big, like, 30, 40 episode long arcs that Dragon Ball Z had and do them in, like, 10 episodes. Yeah. Like, you can't do this. Like, everything just feels like Goku's, like, just becomes, like, Super Saiyan 4 in, like, one episode. It's just, like, where it's, like, this whole, like, arc of building up to that would have been, like, 10 episodes, even ignoring the filler before... It's like, imagine, like, remember all the build-up to him becoming Super Saiyan for the first time? Like, there's, like, again, obviously there's, like, the filler stuff makes that seem even longer. But there's so much of, like, Vegeta thinking about it, thinking, like, am I now a Super Saiyan? Like, have I finally overcome this wall? And he finally hits it. Super Saiyan 4 is just, like, he learns that it kind of existed, just, like, does it. It's stupid. Yeah, it is. Oh, well. All right. But I also, this week, I uh, finished Kirby Planet Robobot. Yeah. And I don't know if I have that much more to say than I did last week, other than it is a phenomenal game. It stayed just as good as it was through the first like two worlds on to the end of the game. I enjoyed every single second of it. It is, just to recap, it has terrific art, terrific animation, great use of the 3D on the 3DS, second only to Super Mario 3D Land in terms of really using that 3D in a way that feels completely essential to how you play the game. There are some levels where I literally don't think you could do it with the 3D off. Like, I, I mean, you, you could. You could guess your way through, but it would just be tough. It would be not ideal. Yeah. So if you have a 2DS, maybe don't, don't play this game. And if you have a 2DS, maybe just don't play games in general. That's that's a bit harsh. (laughs) Sorry. Like maybe they just wanted a cheaper alternative to a like the current Nintendo handheld system that generally didn't use its key gimmick all that much. 
Anyway, um, so yeah, so, this, so that's great. The music, oh my god, the music. I don't know if there's a soundtrack for this game, because there usually aren't for these kind of handheld things, but there should be. It is such a great soundtrack. So much fun. If you like, for instance, like Smash Bros. music, yeah. which has a lot in common with sort of Kirby music in general, it's, it's got that kind of energy and invention to it. Uh, and then just the platforming and the gameplay is so good. And it's got, you know, the, the Kirby archetypes. You know, you swallow the enemies and you shoot stars and you have little powers and stuff. But that addition of the robo-mech suits, which have their own whole set of power-ups and stuff, yeah. is such a fun idea to do. And it, it makes those levels so interesting. Every level is distinct and interesting and has its own kind of voice and style to it. I love all of that. Um, and then you get to the end of the game and... So basically, just to describe the, the, the setup, you have six worlds, and each world has five levels, and then at the end of those five levels, you have a boss. Yeah. So you do that for the first six worlds, and I get to the end of the sixth world. I'm okay, I'm going to go fight the final boss, and then I'm going to beat this game. And I, I thought, I was like, I probably have like ten minutes left with this game. I had like an hour left, because oh. that final boss is not one boss. It's a boss rush that has six bosses. Okay, It's yeah. insane. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you are fighting a planet-sized robot head nice. in space where Kirby has absorbed into his mech suit the uh, Meta Knight's halberd and Kirby, Kirby has become the halberd and you are playing as the halberd in space. It's the Star Fox game we've wanted for a long time and haven't gotten, but we got it in a Kirby game. And okay. it's awesome. And it's, it's just so cool and it's... Like, the artwork there, I can't believe this game is running on the 3DS. It looks like it should be a Wii U game. Like, the graphics are so good, and there's so much color and detail to all that stuff. And the 3D is used so well in that section, and there's just such a sense of scale. It's actually kind of overwhelming. And it, the game never becomes particularly difficult. This is a complaint I've seen. And I think what people... Difficulty is a tough thing to talk about in games. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people, especially with platformers, think difficulty means you die a lot. I don't think that. I think difficulty... That can mean difficulty. Sure. I often think that means cheap difficulty. I think difficulty in platformers can also just mean something that has... You kind of works your brain out a little bit. There might be a puzzle. Or it's just something where you move through and you have to be kind of nimble or dexterous to get through. Or the difficulty is kind of beside the point because the spectacle and the fun and the movement of it is what matters. Right. It's not about dying a bunch or about overcoming something really, really tough. It's about kind of the overall experience. And I think that's what Kirby games kind of are, and this one especially. And there is some challenge near the end. One of those six bosses is very hard. Um, but other than that, you kind of just keep doing your thing. But it's about that overall aesthetic experience you're getting. And it is really fun. And I just can't believe a Kirby game of all of these... Nintendo platformers has that big a finale and something where I finished it and I was just like out of breath like fuck that was a really intense Kirby game yeah I'm just waiting for like the Kirby game that ends with him just swallowing the universe Absolutely. and that's just and that's just like and then you go inside and then you find out like that Kirby is in and of himself inside a bigger Kirby that swallowed his universe that had that Kirby and that universe inside of it. And just like, it's just a bunch of Russian nesting dolls of different Kirby's and different multiverses swallowing everything. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's obviously that is the true setting that Kirby has. Each Kirby game, whether you see it or not, ends with that. And each Kirby, it's like Legend of Zelda. Each time you're playing a Kirby game, it's a different Kirby in a different universe. Absolutely. Yeah. No. Um, the Kirby Planet Robobot, very, very good game. I've played, uh, to beat the campaign... It took me six and a half hours, according to the Nintendo time log, um, because each you know each world takes maybe forty five minutes to an hour to complete, and then yeah. there's the the finale stuff. Um, but there is way more to do. Like at, when I finished the game, my completion rate on my file was only fifty two percent. 
So there's still a lot more to do, and you can go back and kind of find all the collectibles within the, the levels, which they're not excessive at all. There's, it's like some of the recent Mario games where there's three basic things to find, and then there's stickers and stuff you can get. Actually, the sticker system is great, because you collect all these stickers, and you can put them on your mech suit. Okay, So yeah. they're like, it's a cool collectible. Like, I got the Dragoon from Kirby Air Ride, and, all right. and Kirby's rocking that on his left shoulder. I love it. It's fun. Cool. So you got that. Um, so I got that to play, and then you unlock, over the course of the game, four... Mini games and calling them a mini game is almost selling them short because they're pretty big for mini games. Like they're their own little campaigns and things to do. Oh, I've yeah, only yeah. played one of them heavily, and it's like a Kirby. It's almost like a little trial challenge mode where you have to go through these little levels and swallow everyone, and you get points for that. And you can do like strings and combos and stuff. But there's also one called like Meta Nightmare that has its own kind of, and they all have their own title screen and stuff. So it's kind of fun to see that, and I'm excited to see how those all go. And I want to go back through and get all the collectibles. So. Although, even if I didn't want to do any of that, I do think just that basic six to seven hour campaign is worth the price of entry because it is so good if you like that kind of game. Cool. And absolutely one of the best games on the 3DS. And there were definitely times playing this where I was thinking, man, I could absolutely make the argument this is the best game I've played this year if I wanted Jeez. to. And the thing is, I've fought that like in five different games this year, including in the next game I want to talk about. Okay. You've probably heard about this if you've read any gaming site, because everyone on the internet is losing their shit for this game. Yeah. And I'm about to also. Okay. And that is Inside by Playdead Studios. Not a very descriptive name. <laughs> it's just no. called Inside. Yeah. So I've had to, like, when I was tweeting about this game the other night, and I decided to always put it in quotation marks, because otherwise it looks like I'm writing a random sentence with the word Inside yeah. in it. But this is from the studio that made Limbo, which is a very famous indie game from 2012. Does that sound right? Uh, earlier than that. Earlier I than that? Probably like 2009. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, I forgot that was that It's definitely ago. earlier than 2012. Okay. I think that must be when I played it or yeah. something. Because it, it was... Oh, yeah. Originally, Limbo was an Xbox 360 yeah. game. You keep and talking. I'm going to look this up. No worries. And then it came out for everything else under the sun. But Limbo is a kind of standard indie favorite. Although... I never really got into it, and Sean, I know you never really loved it either. Yeah, no. It's it, 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 like I recognized the art style and everything about it was highly accomplished, but like the actual gameplay, I felt like just like got old really quickly. It just felt one of those like it was, and I because I played it a year or two after it came out, which was in 2010. So okay. I, I probably played it around 2012 as well. And so going back to it, it was like this game is not surprising. Like it's not surprising that this game came out in the way that like. In 2009 and 2010, those games like Limbo and Braid and stuff, when the first indie games really started hitting on the Xbox 360, there was like this sense of like, oh, we've never seen something like this before. And by the time, like, you knew that those kinds of games existed and had played a few of them, going back to Limbo was like, it's, it's the, visually, it's very arresting, but like as a game, it just felt very simple and kind of boring to me. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with a lot of that. And I would say none of that about Inside. So I, I just, I had heard so much good stuff about Inside. It is an Xbox One exclusive for the moment. It's coming out on PC on July 7th. And they they say they want to get it to other stuff, so I'm sure at some point we'll have it on PS4. But I imagine there's some kind of exclusivity agreement with Xbox for at least a little bit because it's been on, in all their ads and stuff. Yeah. Um, but for now, it's on the Xbox One, and you can get it on PC. It's $19.99, and I thought, well, this game is so acclaimed. I have an Xbox. It's You can play it in one night is what everyone's saying. So I'm going to get this. I really want to try it out. Yeah. And so I bought it. I went home that night. And I sat down to play it, and four hours later, because I played it in a couple of little... I got up to, you know, do stuff, but overall, sure. one evening, I think it took me probably about four hours to beat. Um, so somewhere between three and four hours, and you could take longer with it if you want, because I do think there are, like, hidden areas and things you can find. 
Um, although you, I can't imagine anyone doing that the first time through because it is such a propulsive game. Yeah, you would have to do that on like a second um, playthrough. Um, but four hours later, I was blown the fuck away and basically just couldn't even get out of my seat. This game is absolutely mind-boggling. To say much of anything about it would be a spoiler, right, and yeah. I don't want to get too heavily into spoilers because the surprise is such a pleasant part of the game. Yeah, and I want to play this game. So okay, so I won't get spoil. into that. Um, but I can talk in generalities about why it's good, right? Uh, yeah, sure. First off is the art style. Like, Limbo is basically monochromatic. It's all black and white. Yeah, it's silhouettes, basically. Yeah, silhouettes. And that looks cool. Inside is in color. And it starts out and you think it's sort of just a monochromatic kind of color, like browns, maybe sepia. And you keep going and you keep going and more and more reveals itself. And this game actually has a very distinctive art style. It has big areas and tons going on. It is kind of like Limbo in that you are moving left to right, side-scrolling on a set plane. You don't go into the background or anything. You're just moving left to right. But unlike Limbo, the backgrounds have a ton going on. Oh, and cool. there's a lot of interaction you're going to be doing with that in the game. And the puzzles become pretty goddamn involved in terms of how you are using 3D space within your 2D space, which is something very unique, I think. Um, but you go through, one of the most amazing things about the game is that it is one long, unbroken chain. You go left to right until you reach the end of the game. And there are a couple moments where it will kind of take over for you and do some things, but there's no cuts there's no breaks in the action. You are moving constantly. And it is amazing to me that they can tell this story without any kind of cuts, any kind of breaks, moving left to right, completely in real time, real geography of the space they've built. And so much happens over the course of it. It's like watching one of those movies. It's like watching the movie Birdman is a good example. Yeah, where that's yeah. the, the movie that won the Oscar a couple of years ago. It's with Michael Keaton. And it's all one unbroken shot. Or it's made to look like that. Yeah, it, yeah. it obviously was not actually done that way because that would be very difficult. Um, but and that's one of those things where you watch Birdman and you're like, man, I can't believe how much they've been able to do without literally cutting or anything like yeah. that. And Birdman has a couple moments where it kinds of cheats. And I love that Inside never cheats. And obviously this is an easier thing to do in a video game and in animation than it is yeah, in Yeah, you don't movie. have to like code the whole thing in one go and hope that right. it all works. <laughs> right. Exactly. But it is like the thought process that has to go into that and the complexity of it to figure out how we're going to integrate puzzles, how we're going to integrate gameplay with the story we're telling that is 100% nonverbal, no text, no dialogue, nothing, but it is a pretty involved story by the end and a pretty amazing story by the end. All of that is just so interesting to me in how that works. And in speaking about the gameplay, it starts off feeling a little bit like Limbo. It's got sort of you start and you're just a boy in the woods and you're kind of trying to evade these forces. And you don't really know what they are, why they're after you. And that kind of feels a little bit like Limbo. Yeah. But then it... Oh, and I was frustrated for the first like 30 minutes. Because I'm like, okay, this is pretty simple. I'm not getting a lot out of this. And then something crazy happens. And I, I won't say it now because you don't want spoilers. I can't wait until you play it and I can just describe the scene where the game for me turned. And mm -hmm. my jaw first dropped. And I think you'll know it when you see it. But it's nuts. It's the introduction of the first kind of in-depth puzzle they do and when you get into that from there to the end of the game my job was pretty much on the floor with the audacity of this game with the amount of stuff that goes on with the amount of places you visit um I, it's it's incredible and those puzzles in particular because it is sort of a puzzle based game in that you have platforming and stuff but often it's built around you'll get to a point and you have to do something to move forward. And I, for lack of a better term, I would call them puzzles. Not sure, yeah. puzzles like in The Witness where you literally have a maze you're solving. Right, yeah. More like Portal. And actually, I thought of Portal 2 a lot when I played this game. Because I have not played a like 
puzzle-based adventure game as invigorating as Portal 2 since Portal 2. I just yeah, yeah. I haven't. It's, I mean, it's a very rare kind of game. But Portal and Portal 2 in particular had that quality where you would get to one of those puzzles and you would start to realize the rules and you'd, you'd try to put it together and you would just get frustrated. And you're like, man, I don't know if I can ever do this. This looks impossible. It's yeah. like a magic trick. You know, like in the movie The Prestige, they talk about like the three parts of the magic trick. Yeah, yeah. And one of those is to establish that what you're about to do is impossible. Uh-huh. And I feel like a good puzzle game is based on that. You have to establish that what you're about to do seems impossible. Yeah. And that's the buy-in. And it's something a lot of puzzle games, I think, maybe miss when they try to do this kind of thing. Because it's either too easy or it's just too hard and it's it's impossible in a bad way. Yeah. But what Portal 2 got and that, li- uh, not Limbo, Inside also has in spades, is you'll get to those moments where you're saying, this is impossible. I literally just don't see how I get around this. And then you start to think about it and think about it. And when the moment of aha comes and you start to put it together, there is this joy and euphoria and just giddiness that very few games or experiences can match. Yeah. And it really made me feel like I was playing Portal 2 again, even though this is a completely different genre. This is a not a first-person shooter kind of thing. Yes, yeah, not a first-person Portal game with yeah. like little fun robot buddies that make right. funny jokes. But you know what I mean? It's like yeah, it's that yeah. same kind of feeling. I mean, there's one of these... Where it's this huge area you're in. You have to go kind of back and forth on three different levels. You have this elevator where you can move up and down. And you have to obtain things. I won't say what they are. And you have to get all this stuff together so you can do this puzzle. I will just tell you it's the number 20 puzzle when you reach it. That that I thought was probably the best in the game just in terms of I can't believe what they're making me do here and having me do here. And when you get through it, it is just so incredible and so amazing. And there was no point in my entire four hours with this game where I thought a pu- where I thought a puzzle was too hard or too easy or anything other than perfectly calibrated to make me feel the kind of joy and excitement and thrills that the game made me want to feel in that moment. And four hours is perfect for it. It does not overstay its welcome at all. It could have been longer and I would have been happy with it, in fact. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it ends on such a perfect moment of just, again, audacity that you're like, yeah, that's, that's pretty much, that's exactly what it needed to be. Um, and I will probably go back and play it again at some point. But I'm also thinking it's kind of like, this was so good and that experience just unbroken. I played it for four hours. I beat it. I don't know if I can ever match that again. Yeah. It's kind of like I've never touched Portal 2 again after I beat it. I mean, I played the co-op, which is a different thing. It's not yeah. story-based. I guess there is story to it, but that's not the focus. Um, but that's one of the things with Portal 2. I just have never felt like that was such a complete experience. I don't know if I could ever re-experience it. And inside might be a similar thing. I don't know. Although I would like to go back and see maybe some scenes again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you've got to play this game. Yeah, no, I definitely so will. Good. Yeah, I'll probably, I might be able to play it before we do the next podcast so maybe we can talk about it then. Yeah, because yeah. if, if you can play it on your PC or something. Yeah, and I, like, I have access, access to Xbox One, so. Okay, yeah, I didn't know. Game. Yeah. Yeah, no, so. Yeah, but like thinking of going back to that, like the, the aha moments in those kinds of puzzle games with Portal 2, the one I always think about, and I feel like everyone I've talked to that's played that game has had this moment near the end of the game, but sometimes it's on different puzzles where it's like, because you, by the time you get to the end of that game, they have layered so much stuff you can do with the base mechanic of just like throwing two portals that like, act, like um, connect these points in space together where it's like, you're doing this one puzzle where it's like, I'm like making this goo over here and it's like bouncing this box up and then putting like a light bridge and shuffling this and like doing all this shit and like flying this turret all over the place. And like, you get to this like, but now how the fuck do I get over there? Like, oh, jeez, I just... I don't, and it's like, oh, wait, 
I could just shoot a portal over there and shoot a portal over here and just walk through the fucking portal. Because, like, I've done so much in this game with all these other mechanics that I completely forgot that, like, the most basic thing of, like, what every single puzzle in Portal 1 was based off of. You just walk through the fucking portals. It's like, everyone had that moment of, like, this game has done so much that, like, and it hasn't asked me to do this most basic thing in so long that I just kind of had completely forgotten. It's like, oh, yeah, I can just walk through here. There is a moment like that in Inside also. And Inside does not obviously have the tonnage of mechanics that Portal does. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a four-hour game, not right. like a 12-hour long game. But there are moments where you're like, you have to step back and be like, right, jumping and moving, yeah. I can't forget about that. And the other thing, and, and this is something some of the reviews have focused on, and I have to focus on too, is it is just as technically polished a game as I have ever played. There isn't anything out of step. It moves at a rock-solid frame rate. It all looks gorgeous. The movement of the kid and the physics on everything you do are so just pitch-perfect. Like, this is a game that took them... They have been working on this since Limbo, so it's been six years. And you would think, how do you spend six years and make a four-hour game? Yeah. Play inside, I think you'll get it. And the amount of focus it must have taken that team to put this thing together over the course of six years with this very clear artistic intent in mind is mind-boggling when you get to the end and you realize how tight an experience you just played. Yeah. So... Yeah, that's the, the really nice thing about, like, the, the indie game revolution, the kind of game it sort of, like, brought to the forefront, is this, like, three, four-hour long game that you, like, typically and, like, hopefully, ideally, could just play in one sitting. Like, that's the way I played Gone Home, you know? Right. Just, like, just get in there, just, like, get in elbows deep, just get your hands dirty, just play through the whole game in one big setting. That's also how I played Portal 1, come to think of it. Yeah. And it's, like, it's those kinds of games that, like, when you can get that and you can make it, and you can make it really tight so as, so as to sort of incentivize the player to play it all in one sitting, like, that's, that's a really special kind of experience. Absolutely. So, that's Inside. Can't recommend it enough. And it is yet another game where I'm thinking, if I wanted to, I could totally make the argument this is Game of the Year... And I have had that thought too many times this year. Yeah. Sean, yes. 2016, as we said before, bad year for humanity. Yeah. Good year for art. Sure, yeah. Can we say that? That's, that is how that works out. So let's go back and let's just do a little retrospective on the media of 2016. Maybe before we even get into specific games or titles or anything. I mean, we've talked about this before, but maybe we haven't focused on it. This has been a crazy year for games. Fucking yes, it has. Like... And and I thought for me, like with 2015, my like the 2015 was a year that really catered to me in a lot of ways with games and had stuff like like Bloodborne and Witcher Three that were just like incredible fucking games that I just loved to death. And I didn't think like then that that 2016 would be able to sort of like compare to that. And I still, as much as I love like Uncharted Four and Doom, I don't think there's anything that quite hits The Witcher Three for me personally. But right. still, like. The huge diversity and wide swath of just incredible games that 2016 has offered is insane, and we're only and we're not even at the like insane holiday rush that is like when typically games come out. And I think we've seen that like 2016 is like a trend we have seen. I think since these consoles have come out, is games releasing in like a wider sort of window where you get some games that like can come out in spring that are very good. Like Witcher Three came out in May last year. And then you get, like, some games that can drop over the summer. And so it's, like, you're not just, like, hitting, like, mid-August and then just going, like, a fucking maniac till mid-November. It's, like, you have nice releases that are spread out. That's, like, you can get a couple of games that drop in February. Games, some games that drop in March that are big, 
notable, significant games. And so, like, even though it's only been the first half of the year, like, you would expect, like, Doom and Uncharted 4 would be two games that would, like, be able to fucking, like, crowd their way out and just, like, shoulder the competition away in the middle of, like, the holiday rush. And they just, like, were like, no, we can just drop this. In one week in May. Yeah, it was one week and just be like, we're going to dominate the entire conversation in video games for just, like, two weeks, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's just been very good. It's been insane, and I think it's good maybe to check in at mid-year on what have been the best, because... I would not be at all surprised if our perceptions of this are overturned by the end of the year. Yeah. Because just to look at what's coming, I'm just going to run through a little bit of what I'm excited for in the back half of okay. the year. Yeah. I mean, uh, July does not have a ton, although it's got some ones. Like, I'm curious about um, Square Enix is putting out a little RPG called I Am Setsuna. Yeah. Yeah. That could be really good. I, I'm kind of, I want to read a review or two, mm-hmm. but like the art style and stuff um, looks like it could be something special. Yeah. Um, so that's something to look out for. There's some other indies that month. But when you get into August, it starts to get crazy. Because August is No Man's Sky. Yeah. Which, that that could absolutely be a game of the year kind of thing. Yeah, if it's yeah. as good as it looks like it could be. I'm really excited to see what that game really is. You know? Yes, I cannot wait. And then September is go time. Uh-huh. September, let me read you the list of titles in September. That okay. I, This is just on my calendar. And I, yeah, yeah. I don't just keep games I'm interested in, but I don't put everything on here. Uh-huh. So September is XCOM 2. Yes. Fucking yes. ReCore. Bioshock Remastered. You got Dragon Quest Seven over on the 3DS Remastered, which yeah. is nice. 3DS actually has a lot that month because they're also doing that Shin Megami Tensei Four sequel. Oh right, yeah. Which is getting a release here, so there's just a lot on the 3DS that month. You've got Destiny: Rise of Iron. Fucking right, that's coming out. I totally forgot. I totally forgot that expansion is coming out this year. Forza Horizon Three, which we both said if we had the time, we would love to try. Yeah, that that game looks really good out of E3. And Final Fantasy XV to cap the month off. Uh huh. Yeah. That is an insane. And in Japan, month. Persona Five of the same. Game. Yes. Yes. So crazy, right? Yeah, man. Final Fantasy fifteen. Oh man, so that's a ton. That's just September, and I know you and me both at least want to play that month. Final Fantasy fifteen. Yeah, definitely. XCOM two. Mm-hmm. Destiny: Rise of Iron. Yeah, we're at least going to try to, f- and I want to play Recore. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know how I'm going to do it. October. Yeah, Gears of War four, uh-huh. which I will probably skip, and I'll be. And I'm kind of glad I can't. Yeah, it's like a game I like. It's a game that ideally I would like to play, but like one I don't like. It's while I can play Xbox One games, it's not the easiest thing in the world for me to just be able to do. And then also like the time thing, and their demos have not been good enough at E3 to sort of yes. like really encourage me. But I'm like intensely curious about how that game's going to turn out. Absolutely, uh, The Last Guardian on October 25th. <sighs> yeah, yeah, gonna play that. Gonna That's play a that. Titanfall 2 on October 28th. Yeah, which I really want to play. And Skyrim Special Edition on October 28th, which I can safely skip, but I want to get back to it yeah, at some want, point. Yeah, I want to check that out at some point. Like, I, like, personally, for me, I really want to see like the DLC stuff for that, because yeah. I never played that for Skyrim. All right, then November, you got uh-huh. Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, which we both thought at the beginning of the year we can skip that. Now I think we both have it pre-ordered, Yeah, right? we both, yeah, I pre-ordered the Call of Duty 4. Fucking E3 Remastered, demo, yeah. looking so like, good. Fucking goddamn, because they, it comes out so close to Titanfall 2. I know, I like, know. I, I want to play both of these games and I don't know if I really feasibly can play both of them. Exactly, and the problem for me is that, like, it's a weird thing where with Infinite Warfare, I don't give a shit about the multiplayer. I want to play the campaign. With Titanfall 2, I'm curious about the campaign, but I'm more interested in the multiplayer. Yeah. So, it's this weird back... Maybe I can just combine them into one mm-hmm. game. I don't know. But I obviously want to play the campaigns for both. Watch Dogs 2 is on November 15th. Probably just going to skip that, but I'm really curious what the reviews are going to be at the very least. And, hey, someone's playing it, so... Fucking, like, there, while I don't think it's likely, there is a chance that that game might actually be totally amazing. Who knows? Who knows? These come out, 
I might end up buying it if it's if they have really good reviews. And then November 18th, Pokemon Sun and Moon. Okay, yeah. 3DS actually having a much busier year than it looks like it's having. Yeah. So, and then December, the last game of the year really is South Park, The Fractured Butthole, mm-hmm. which has a great title. I probably won't play it. Yeah. But it's there. And just think about that. Like, no matter what kind of gamer you are, that is an insane list of stuff through the end of this yeah. year. Yeah, I and mean, somewhere in November is where Dishonored 2 is also. Right, okay. Yeah. I, did, I think when I made this, maybe that didn't have the date yet. But yeah. So, so much stuff. Like, And if you have eclectic tastes like Sean and I do, yeah. it's a fucking nightmare. Uh-huh. So anyway, all I'm saying is, as much as we love things like Doom and Uncharted 4, there could be another game of the year in there, right? Yeah, like who knows how good Final Fantasy XV is. Like yeah. that's that's a big wild card. Absolutely. And then also, yeah, like then Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, like if it is as good as the the demo made it seem, and if like they're really delivering on what they're promising with that game, that game could like that campaign could legitimately be amazing. Yes. So much stuff I'm curious about. Uh, I'm I'm interested in. Just hearing that is making me exhausted. At XCOM too, given how yeah. much you love the first one, that mm-hmm. could be the Last Guardian is another one that, like Final Fantasy 15, I think if that's good, it's going to be really good. Yeah. So so many on there. My pre-order page on Amazon right now is an insane list of shit that yeah. I have to pay for. Um, and then it's like even just ignoring the money part of it, which is a significant investment. It's also the time component yes. of like. Fucking how long is Final Fantasy XV going to be? How am I going to play that game? I'm just, like, if I'm looking at my schedule, I if I skip Gears of War 4, Final Fantasy XV is September 30th, Last Guardian doesn't come out until October 25th, I have a solid three weeks. Yeah, I can probably beat it in three weeks. Probably. Know. We're going to find Man. out. It's like, Final Fantasy XV is one where I really wish that that had dropped in, like, February or something. Like, <laughs> yes. that's a much better RPG. Like, I was, that's one of the things that was great about The Witcher 3 dropping in May last year was it's just, like, I had the whole summer to play that game, and there was not much that came out over that summer. Okay, so, but looking backwards now. Yeah. As of July 3rd, 2016, mm-hmm. what is your game of the year or games of the year? You don't have to choose if you don't want to, but I'm yeah. curious. I mean... The two big standouts for me, obviously, are Doom and Uncharted 4. Like, that's, like, something that for, like, me personally, I keep on going back internally in my head about, like, which one I think is better, which one, if I had to do Game of the Year right now, which one would I pick? I'm leaning Doom, but I don't... That's a hard... Because they're such different games. That's a really, really hard choice. It is. And, I, yeah. I've thought kind of the same way, and I've leaned Doom at times... I've leaned Uncharted 4 at times. Like, it kind of almost depends on the day of the week and how I'm feeling. Uh-huh. Because they are such different experiences, but they are similar in just that on a gameplay level, they hit so hard. And then on the aesthetic and story level, while Uncharted 4 honestly ha- obviously has a much more in-depth story, Doom has a pretty amazing presentation in its own way. Yeah, like, for the kind of game it is, it's really, like, a top tier in terms of, like, for a really mechanically intensive focused uh, first person shooter most stories in those like for the original Doom is basically non-existent whereas like in this in new Doom it's like weirdly compelling and it adds a lot to the experience the weird like satire elements that they they, they layer throughout the game are really good and they, it adds a lot to the pacing of the game I'm gonna do a quick like debate on both sides for myself okay here's where I would say Doom might be number one yeah is just think about the genre Mm-hmm. First person shooters naturally grow stale because it's not something where you can do the same thing over and over with a lot of variety, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think we had been in a pretty fallow period for first person shooters for a while now. Yeah, like, go just go back to my Halo 5 review for that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's just a period where I think you get some standouts once in a while, 
but overall other genres have just overtaken it the open worlds and the adventure games and stuff yeah. and while uncharted 4 is the absolute best version of what it is doing what it tries to do no game has ever done better you still have uncharted 2 and 3 Sure, and you yeah. have Tomb Raider and Rise of the Tomb Raider. And you have Last of Us and things like that. So it's not like that came completely out of left field. Sure, Doom yeah. came pretty far out of left field yeah. in terms of giving us an experience that harkens back to the history of first-person shooters while also being forward-looking. And it creates a gameplay experience that is utterly unlike anything I've ever played. It has hints of other things I've played. But overall, just the rush you get playing it, I don't know if I've ever felt that precise feeling playing a game. Yeah. On the Uncharted 4 side, mm-hmm. I look at the scenes between Sam and Nathan. I look at the scenes between Nathan and Sully, yeah. and Nathan and his wife, Elena, and some of the emotional beats in that game. And I think of like the big chase in the middle of that game. And I think of the shooting mechanics being so good, and just the overall finale, and particularly the epilogue, the epilogue with Cassie. Yeah. And I think, man, I don't know if a game in the English language has ever made me feel as hard as Uncharted 4 made me feel yeah and that's an argument too yeah i mean because like because uncharted 4 is like i said this in my review we I said this when we talked about it on the podcast and i was fucking stand by this it's still like even ignoring how well it handles the characters just in terms of like a sheer plot level like it is the best plot in that entire like storytelling genre i have ever seen like that the old the whole mystery of libertalia and everything with that like i have never been more captivated by this kind of like treasure hunting lost world storytelling thing, story type thing that like Indiana Jones has like the national treasure movies like all that like all that sort of like style of fiction I've never been so captivated as when they walk in on the room where all the pirate skeletons of like all the captains of these different pirate uh, ships and everything and them all together dead having been poisoned like that scene just my jaw was on the fucking floor and then how they so expertly tie that in with the character relationship with Nate and Elena and what Nate is going through in his character arc for the game. Like, just on a pure structural level, the plotting of that game is so insane. Especially when you look at how far they came from Uncharted 3 to The Last of Us to Uncharted 4. Like, that's... For that be the, the last Uncharted game and the ways that it sort of, like, corrects all the popular criticisms of that franchise and sort of, like, like flips them off and says, like, fuck you, like, look at this... Like, that's incredible. And see, now that we're going through the arguments, I'm probably going Uncharted 4 is number one and Doom is number two. Yeah, but when you think about with Doom, just remember the way you felt when you beat the last boss in Doom and okay. how you kill that spider motherfucker. That's pretty fucking good, right? Oh, and I've played more of Doom than I did of Uncharted 4 yeah. because... And that's not necessarily means one is better than the other because I think it would be very tough to play Uncharted 4 and then just start over again. Yeah, because also, like, the way that Doom handles its collectibles is, like, I, I don't want to play Uncharted 4 again to, like, find all the lost treasures because that's not compelling. But, like, playing through Doom again to find all the yeah. collectibles is, like, that's a really rewarding experience. Yeah, but I've played through the Doom campaign twice completely and another, like, half just to get some random things. Yeah. And I've played multiplayer and stuff, so... And I, although I really love the Uncharted 4 multiplayer too, like I actually think of those two, I probably like the Uncharted multiplayer more, but they're both very good. Yeah. And I wish Overwatch didn't exist so I could play them both more. Right. Not really. Uncharted. Overwatch is great, but it's, yeah. So I don't know. It's so tough. It's almost like one is 1A and one is 1B. Yeah. So just remember, like, think about with Doom, 
just think about the way that Doom uses music. Like, just, oh, yeah. Just think about pressing the pause button or, like, the map screen in Doom and the way the music is like... Excellent. But I would also stress, think of how Henry Jackman, the composer in Uncharted 4, uses Nathan Drake's theme yeah, at certain moments. Yeah. But just think about rolling up on a dude and shooting him in the face with a shotgun and then him, like, doing the glowing thing. And you grabbing his leg, knocking him to the ground, and stomping his own head out with his own boot. Think about that for a second, Jonathan. Think about the super shotgun. God damn it. The super shotgun. There's no wrong choice here, right? No. But there, but there is a choice here. That's, that's so tough. Me. And yeah. here's the thing. I have a couple others that I would mm-hmm. throw in contention. Yeah. Let me, let me just say my others so far this year. Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. Digimon motherfucking story. That was a full-on obsession here at the podcast. Yeah. To go back to the first episode where I talk about it. And I do think I could make the argument. Oh, I absolutely could. It, it, you could. It's got a great story. It's a 60-hour game that does not lag. It, is, it, it has great characters. It has a particularly evocative ending. And that Digimon evolving and collecting system is unlike anything any game has ever attempted. Yeah, it's, it feels like... And I know there have been other Digimon story games that I imagine have had similar systems. But for like the first one coming over here and the first one we played... Like, playing that game feels like a revelation for that genre of, like, the Pokemon-esque, like, monster-catching games. That also Persona has elements of that, as well as, like, it's just what they do with how you can fuse the Digimon, like, Digivolve the Digimon and, and, like, go back and forth and, like, all around that evolution tree. The way that you can, with enough hard work, take any Digimon in that game and turn him into any other Digimon. Like, literally, there is no barrier. Like, you can, if you are smart with how you de-digivolve them and digivolve them up and all that shit, you could make anything, like, into anything else. And it's like the sheer insanity of making that system and making that work and making someone like me who's a gamer that, like, normally I wouldn't get that in-depth with a system like that. I would sort of see that, get a bit intimidated by it and say, like, just kind of skim over it. Instead, I ended that game with every single Digimon and then, like, most of the mega level or in ultra level Digimon level 99 like by grinding them up to like my high like the highest level they could be like that's how I ended that game you know yeah and I did too I it's like I normally would not do that with these kinds of games you know like I even with Persona 3 and Persona 4 I did not go in that deep into the fusion stuff like I didn't but like with Persona 4 the golden I did a little bit just because my knowledge of that game allowed me to sort of like kick out the level curve and all that stuff but other than that, like, I never got that in-depth with the Persona fusing stuff and that. It was like, Digimon, like, that became the game for me at some point. Absolutely. So here's the... Again, I don't know. Now we're talking about it. Is Digimon number one this yeah. year? Because it's like... Because if you're looking at, like, really compelling character arcs in video games this year, like, straight up, like, I'm not saying this ironically, I think, like, Nate's in Uncharted 4 and Nokia's in Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth are of a similar quality. Like, they are... So insanely good. That moment where Nokia gets Omnimon and he's standing behind her with his arms folded and she has her arms folded. Like, that is such a triumphant moment for that character halfway through that game. It's amazing. It's amazing. And obviously Nathan Drake has the benefit of four games, many years. We're going to have a bigger connection with him. But what they do with Nokia in one game with minimal voice acting also. Because not all of it is voiced. Uh, Amazing. Yeah. And none of it is, you know, mo-capped and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So, ah, shit. I mean, right now, the theme on my PS4 is still the Digimon Story Cybersuit theme that I got when I, like, got the digital version of that game. I've never taken that down. Shit, I don't have a theme for that. It's really good. Oh. Maybe I can pay for it. 
If it's like a buck, play. I would do that. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Because the character design and the art in that game is really great. It is. I'm kind of sick of my... I still have the 20th anniversary theme on. Yeah, I, I stopped using that a while ago. I like it because it has the PlayStation startup sound. Yeah. But anyway. Um, okay, so there's those. For me, I also have to mention... Okay, I talked about Kirby Planet Robobot. Probably not actually better than any of those. But I just... For the genre it is in, it is such an exemplary... Exactly, example. It is such an exemplar of what that kind of genre should be, the kind of thrills and fun yeah. it should be. And it is the absolute height of Nintendo just, even in kind of a down year, they can say, yeah, we are going to have a game with incredible technical merits and music and visuals and all that, and we're not even going to make that big a deal out of it. It reminds you that Nintendo may have problems as a company when it comes to just sitting down and making a game. Very few people do it as well and as dedicated as Nintendo does. And this is one that I hope doesn't fly too under the radar for 3DS owners because it's a it's an absolute must play for that system. Yeah. So there's that. And inside, holy fucking crap! There have been no game this year has reached moments like Inside has where I just jaw on the floor. What the fuck am I playing? Inside is a masterfully designed game designed by insane people, and I love that. So nice. those are up there too. And I can't forget the game I have played more than any other game this year. And that is Fire Emblem yeah. If, Fire Emblem Fates. Now, technically there's multiple games of it, but I've played all of Birthright, all of Conquest, and I still haven't found time for the third one, because when am I going to find time for that? Yeah. But I want to. And it's tough because I think Birthright is a slightly subpar Fire Emblem game, and I think Conquest is a really great Fire Emblem game. And do I even those out, or do I just take Conquest and put that on its own? I could. I think it's lower than several of these games. It's definitely not to the level of Digimon or Doom or Uncharted for me. But it's a really great game. And the amount of work they put into that. And I have that fucking eight-disc soundtrack that I listen to and I love it. And so it's got those technical merits. And it's got a really good story on the Conquest side. And it's got some phenomenal encounters. And just the feeling of, at the end of Conquest, I beat that game with three units left alive. And that is Man. pretty thrilling. And no other game can really let you do that. Yeah. And I love that about Fire Emblem. No, so, just wait until you play XCOM 2. No, very true. I hadn't thought of that. Um, and, you know, I know it doesn't really count because it's a remaster, but Gravity Rush remastered. Gravity Rush. It, it was new to me. Yeah. One of the best things. Gravity played, Rush so. is definitely getting a special game of the year. Yeah. Commendation or something at the end of the, in our end of the year podcast this year. Yes. Uh, so... I just, okay, I've got, if we're just talking new games, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I didn't mention Overwatch. I love Overwatch. It's lower than the other ones for me, but it's good. That's seven already that I could put on a top ten. None of those are games I want to cut. Yeah. Assuming more than three games are good between now and the end of the year, some of those are going to have to get cut. Mm -hmm. That's fucking tough. Yeah. And I'm kind of used to this with movies. But movies are a different thing because when you... Because you can just watch so many more movies yes. than you can play video games. And you don't invest in a movie the way you invest in yeah. Digimon, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm glad you just said that. You just, you just like, ruined your political career now. <laughs> Everyone knows you're a Digimon guy. Yeah, but uh, you know what I'm saying? It's just crazy. Yeah, no. And then for me, like, I have some on there that, that I played that you didn't like. Dark Souls 3, for me... It's probably kind of in the same place that Fire Emblem is for you in that, like, it's really, really good. But it's also, like, too much of a known quantity. And, like, it, like some things in Dark Souls 3 are better than they were in the earlier games. But some things are not quite as good as they were in the earlier games. So it's like, Dark Souls 3 is still an amazing game. But it's like, when you put it next to Uncharted 4 and Doom in particular, it doesn't really stand up. But, like, I was thinking about this the other day because I was listening to a podcast that was discussing some of this stuff. 
like one of the boss fights in uh, Dark Souls Three. I can't. I've just have forgotten the name, but it's like the 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 guys who are basically the uh, followers of Arturius, who was a character in Dark Souls One. That boss fight where they're all fighting each other. That is still maybe one of the best boss fights I've played in any game ever. Like it, like just everything about the the way that boss fight is designed, in the way like the music, the art design of it, of like the level and the the cutscene that it plays when you come into it, and the way that it just conveys so much about the narrative of what's going on in that game with saying so little. And the fact that, like, and there are a bunch of moments like that in Dark Souls 3 where, like, when you access the uh, tower that's next to the Firelink Shrine that is, you have to buy a key to get into, and when you see what is at the bottom of that tower, that's like, if people have not played the game yet, I don't want to spoil what's there. But pay attention, because, the, like, the environmental storytelling of Dark Souls 3 is so on point, and, like, the revelations about what has been going on in that world and the way it connects to... Dark Souls 1, Dark Souls 2, and the way that it also connects to Bloodborne and, like, pulls that stuff in without, like, ever saying anything about it. Like, there is dialogue in the game, but it's, like, very short, brief snippets that is that characters talk about, and it's, like, very rarely do they ever, like, address anything specific about the world through dialogue. It's all through you having to interpret visually what has been going on in this world. So Dark Souls 3 is stupendous. And then also, for me, like, and it's such a hard thing to sort of rank with everything else, but The Witcher 3 Blood and Wine, if I was being 100% honest, The Witcher 3 Blood and Wine would actually have to probably be my, my number one. Just the, Which is, again, kind of bullshit because like so much of what makes it great is coming off of uh, the base game of The Witcher 3 and, and my connection with that and my... You know, like The Witcher 3 was a game that was so good that I have read every single one of those books that have been translated into English so far, you know? Like it's so, a game that encouraged me to do that. So maybe we just leave DLC out this year on the lists? Maybe. Like, that might be a decision I make at the end of the year. Yeah, to, like, recognize it through a different award. And, like, and just because Witcher 3 list. was your number one last year. It yeah. would have been... I didn't play it until this year, but it would have been my clear number one last year. So yeah. maybe that can just be where number one is, and then this year can be new games. Yeah, but Blood and Wine is so, so good. And, and like, part of, like, one of the reasons why it would feel compelling to put it on the list is because... A lot of the stuff that does make it very strong are unique to the blood and wine. Like the story that they tell and the characters that they introduce are like so. It's like because it's not just like oh, The Witcher Three was really good, so Blood and Wine is going to be really good. It's like they the the amount of effort they put into like really building out this fantastic new open world section with Toussaint and all the the, the levels and the the, the quests and the storylines they pepper throughout that. The way that like. I mean, there are, God, there's some quest lines in Blood and Wine, like one that, um, where you get involved with this uh, sort of like chivalric tourney, and it is all this sort of very Arturian knight stuff. And it's just this storyline that I swear you could take that storyline, and if you broke it out and like, like wrote it down as like rhyming verse, it could be a, like an Arturian poem, like, like, uh, like the, uh, Sir Gawain in the Green Knight or something like that. Like it is that level of just super high quality storytelling that is peppered throughout that entire DLC that's completely unique to itself. Like that's just amazing. And the note that that DLC leaves off on is incredible. It's like, man. Are there any games from this year so far that you haven't played that you need to catch up on? Uh, I mean, obviously, Inside, the, we were just talking about that. That's one I really want to play. But that's still new. So yeah, that... yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, in a way, like, XCOM 2 is one of those. It's like, right. because that's, it already came out on PC, so I'm really excited to go play that on consoles. But now, 
I can't think of like anything big that I've really missed that I really wanted to play. I haven't really, I haven't picked up Overwatch. Like I played a lot of the beta, so I haven't felt really compelled to get back into it. Okay. But that is something that I would have liked to play more of. Yeah, Overwatch is good. I've I found that just to say with Overwatch, I'll get back to my question in a second. I'm not evading it. But yeah, yeah. my brother has been out of town for three weeks, and he didn't have an Xbox with him because he couldn't take it with him. And I've tried playing Overwatch on my own, and I'm not into it on my own. If I have mm-hmm. someone else to play it with, like my brother, either over Xbox Live or he's in the other room or something, then I have a lot of fun with it. If I'm just on my own, it, and this is that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not a criticism. Just, it of the is game. a multiplayer game. It's a multiplayer game, and it's such a social game, and it's such a fun, happy kind of everyone get involved game. Um, but that is its only limitation for me is that when I'm alone, I don't feel the need to play it. When I'm with someone else, I love to play it. It probably will not make my top ten for the end of the year, even though I think we can all recognize, culturally, it is the game of 2016. Yeah. I mean, it is... It's one of the things that, like, I almost kind of am starting to dislike Overwatch in a weird way because of the way that some people talk about it. It's like... Because I feel like I have a slightly different perspective on it than some of the people that have been grabbed by it so much. And that I look at Overwatch and, like, realizing the way that people, like have taken to specifically the characters and stuff. Because I think that's one of the biggest things that has, like, motivated the very, the big, like, cultural attention around it. It just made me realize, like, they just took, like, anime, like, moe character design in anime and just, like, made that in a class-based shooter. It's, like, looking at that, it's, like, almost kind of gross at some point. Like, you guys are, like, way too into this. Like, you are into this the way that, like... If you, like, go online and read a, like, anime discussion about, like, Nisekoi or something, it's like, you're way too into this. Do you do, do not be this invested in these characters. It's getting creepy. Eventually, you're just going to buy, like, body pillows with May on it. It's like, you don't want to go down this path, man. I've seen right. people do this. But, you know, end of the day, if you look at the game on its own merits, it is a great game. It's yeah. Blizzard knocked that one out of the fucking park. It is so well balanced and built and designed, and it is so much fun. And those characters... Even though I, I agree with you that the obsession can get a little creepy. But that was the first thing you said about the game is they did... The character such... design is phenomenal. Absolutely. So, can't discount that either. I mean, if you're going to pull inspiration for how you handle character design, anime is Absolutely. a really good way to do that. C, our love for Digimon Story Cyberspace. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so back to games I need to play. There's two for me. One I already own and I just ha- literally have not had the time yet. And that's Bravely Second right, uh, yeah. and Lair. Which I, I bought it right when it came out because I wanted that big collector's edition. Very glad I got it. As you saw, it's like bigger than my fucking computer. Yeah. And it's got that great art book and stuff. So I can't wait to dive into that game. I probably That will probably be the next game I play. Because we don't have another one coming out till No Man's Sky. And so I might be able to spend the month of July on that. Yeah. And I know like with Bravely Default, I actually played that kind of in like three periods. Where I started playing it like for 20 hours and then kind of was off for a few months. Came back. If it's anything like Bravely Default, I would be able to kind of pick it up and put it down, which is good. It's not the kind of story that is so propulsive you have to be just playing the whole yeah. thing. So, but I just got to, I have to make sure I'm done with that before Final Fantasy 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, like, you, you cannot play two JRPGs at the same time. It's no. just not physically possible. No. Even if one's on handheld, it just can't be done. Yeah. I, I could play, if, if Final Fantasy 15 were anything like 13, I could play Bravely Second during the cutscenes, and that would actually work just fine. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so there's that, and then the other one, and it's just, it's not out on Mac yet, or consoles, but I, I want to play this game so bad, Stardew Valley. Yeah, no, yeah, me too. Haven't played it yet. It's, it's on PC, and I, I do have a PC laptop playing around I could grab, but I just, I want it on my Mac, or on PS4, and, um, if it, you know, he's, the, the guy who made that game has said, 
It's going to be on PS4 and Xbox at the end of the year, like quarter four. But it should be on Mac pretty soon. So I might get to play that soonish if he gets it out in July or August or something. Yeah. Um, I'm a little worried if it comes out like in November. It, I just yeah, that seems like a game I would wait to play for like December or something like that where things yeah. really calm down. and it's just, that, that just seems like a very relaxing game that I, I really yeah. want to play. Yeah, so um, if it does come out on Mac, I will absolutely. I'm even thinking of just buying it during the Steam sale right now and then when it eventually comes to Mac, I'll just be able yeah, to play it. Have it. Might as well do that. But um, yeah, so that's the other one for me. But So just I'm glad my backlog for this year so far, I've played most everything I need to play. Yeah. It's just those two... Um, and other than that, yeah, man, I've enjoyed everything. Uh, the other one for me is Tokyo Mirage Sessions, hashtag oh, yeah. Sharp, Sharp FE. FE. And it looks like it's a really good game. I kind of doubt I'm going to get to it this year. Yeah. It, yeah. I just, I don't know. It's There's other things that are just a higher priority for me. And I kind of feel like I got my idle JRPG fix last year with Persona 4 Dancing All Night. So and, I don't know. and Tokyo Mirage Sessions is like maybe a bit too close to Persona Five that you don't want to like give because it it does seem I've like watched a bit of video of it and it seems very Persona esque yeah. in a lot of ways. So I might play it eventually. It's one of those things. I'm glad I have a Wii U four, but I don't know at the moment, especially because right now I'm on my Dragon Ball kick and stuff. I've also uh, because there aren't as many games, I've had time to read books, and that's that's nice. Yeah. That's really good. Nice. That was that was one of my favorite things. It's like it's one of my favorite things that The Witcher gave to me is in like my post college life. It was what allowed me to read books again. Where it's like, because I imagine you had this with like film, having to yeah. watch so many movies for school, or for me having to read so many books that just became like I couldn't read books unless it was for something super specific that people were telling me to do. And so then when like I was like, oh wait. I'll just read these Witcher books on this New York trip. It's like, oh, I can read books and just enjoy it. It was a magical feeling. I've been reading my uh, Patrick O'Brien, uh, Captain Jack Aubrey books. Okay. You ever, if you ever seen the movie Master and Commander, The yeah, Far yeah. Side of the World with Russell Crowe, one of my favorite movies that's based on a, a series of books that were published between 1969 and 2000. There's 20 of them, and I'm so glad. I'm on book three. Oh, my God. These, these books are my, uh, my porn just they're great. Okay, that's just you not, didn't need to that say did, that. I didn't like, mean it that way. That means it's that sounds like I I'm mean sick. now I know I'm that not, I don't want to borrow those books from you because the pages are going to be stuck together. I read it on a Kindle. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, I mean it's going to be shorted out then. Okay. No, I meant it in the way that it's just like I have this intense interest in naval life and like old ships and things like that. So it's really it's just it's it's got that fetishistic aspect to it but the books are also they are phenomenal character studies they are phenomenally well written i've had a lot of fun reading them sure. i misused a word there i meant to say something else and it came sure. out creepy yeah, no this is why i should edit the podcast but i don't yeah like i'm i'm looking forward to the next time i go over to your house and just see you have this big box full of different kindle screen protectors it's like, jonathan why do you don't shut up that? <laughs> you're the one who said it all right uh, speaking of movies, you said, um, you know, you imagine I had the same problem as you did with books. Yeah. I have. I've seen almost nothing this year. Uh, I This will probably be the first year Come since... Come on, you saw the great, just inimitable Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. I know you saw that. <sighs> I have my list. I, I have a media of 2016 list I keep so I don't forget anything for top 10 time. Uh, my movie list is pretty short, but where I have Batman v Superman written down, it is listed as Batman v Superman Dawn of Awfulness. Okay, yeah, so. that's... Yeah. You know, you could have maybe tried a little bit harder for a pun there, but it works. Definitely the worst movie we've seen this year. <laughs> oh, fucking yeah. <laughs> the worst movie I've seen personally since Amazing Spider-Man 2. So anyway, I'm not going to see... Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yes. Amazing... <laughs> I said Amazing Spider-Man Oh, did you? I thought yeah. I... I, I, just heard I would never make that mistake. Okay. Who do you think I am? <laughs> I'm the kind of person that 
I've like I have probably never written down Spider Man without a hyphen since I was like five years old. Okay, like I'm not gonna fuck that up. Anyway, um, so that's bad. I do want to say, like uh, again, probably not gonna make a top ten list for movies this year. But the one trend I want to note that I think has been special this year is Disney has had a hell of a fucking year. Oh yeah, started yeah. off with Zootopia, great animated movie, one of my favorite Disney animated movies ever. Very funny, very heartfelt, and actually I think very timely in a year where uh, one of our two presidential candidates is a neo-Nazi. It's like openly just straight up racist. Yes. Like not even trying to find excuses for it. Yeah, and it's a movie about xenophobia, and it's about these things, and I think it handles it in its allegorical way very well. Um, So I loved that about it. They had The Jungle Book, which is a movie that I should have hated. I don't like the live-action CGI stuff. Yeah. I don't like when you put celebrity voices in realistic animals, and somehow all of it works, and it is probably the most interesting use of special and impressive use of special effects i was gonna say since i don't even know i I don't know what the last one would be that hit me that hard on 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 the cgi level there's things with practical effects that are fantastic but you know the jungle book is pretty much animated except for the kid and a lot of it you would not know you would look at like the bear and be like did they just like put honey in a bear's mouth and make it talk and then i I think this maybe is like child endangerment i don't think you're allowed to do this legally no but i mean and that's one of the great things is that now we know you can make a movie about animals and you don't have to abuse animals anymore oh fucking great you do not that movie is proof you do not have to abuse animals anymore for your movies not that you ever really had to but But you you kind (laughs) of had to air bud I don't think Airbud was artistically worth it either way, but no. yes. It's the greatest movie of the 90s. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Defined a generation. It did. So they had those two, which were just incredible. Um, Finding Dory, which I loved even more. Guy, Just a really great Pixar sequel that, again, shouldn't have been as good as it was. And then Captain America Civil War. All these oh, yeah. things under the Disney banner. You know, possibly the best superhero movie ever. Just uh, great stuff. Got us the Spider-Man we always deserved. Mm -hmm. Gave us Black Panther in a way that I don't think we ever thought we were going to see Black Panther on screen. And, yeah, so just those four Disney movies. And they've had some flops. You know, they had Alice in Wonderland, too. No one gave a shit. This weekend they had the Steven Spielberg movie, The BFG, which I actually do want to see because I like Spielberg and I think it looks cool. That's probably my favorite Roald Dahl book as well. BFG's really good. I've never read... That's one of the ones I haven't read for some reason. It's really good. Okay. Yeah. Um, But I would like to go see that. Uh, I just haven't... I know it kind of bombed and luckily Disney is in a position where they can afford a couple bombs because those four movies I just mentioned are basically all billion dollar grocers. Yeah. So... It's insane. I mean, Finding Dory is going to... No movie has overtaken Shrek 2 at the domestic box office for an animated film. And that movie was 2004. So, like... And it's going to overtake it basically next week. So, that's insane. Um, And deserve it. It's a really good movie. So, uh, Finding Dory, not... uh, Shrek 2 is fine, but Finding Dory is better. As animated sequels go. Sure, yeah. Um, Although, I'm not a huge Shrek fan to begin with. So, there you go. Um, Anyway, so just Disney, that would be the story of movies for me this year, honestly, is that in terms of blockbusters, Disney owns everything under the sun, yeah. but right now it doesn't feel gross because they're actually doing well by it. Like, And you know, you got the new Star Wars coming out this year, which looks yeah. really good. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited for that one. Yeah, so plenty of good stuff, and that's fun. So that's movies. I mean, you haven't seen that much this year, right? No. The one, like, looking forward, like... Another one of the things that has motivated me watching all these old Godzilla movies is also that that the Shin Gojira is coming out in Japan near the end of July. Yeah. So, 
And that's, I, that's on the horizon. I don't know when it's going to be available for us over here. but uh, A company does have it, and they are going... I think there will be screenings probably where it'll be here in, in Denver. If it comes to Denver, I'm guessing the C Film Center will have it awesome. at some point. So just I would be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll let you know if I see it, because I get their newsletter and stuff. Um, but yeah, that's exciting. Yes. Yeah, and a new proper if, Godzilla movie. If the, Can we make the promise, if that comes to Denver, we will see it and talk about it on the podcast? I mean, yes. I'm going okay. to see it as soon as possible. I've yeah. seen... Literally every single Godzilla movie, so yes. I'm not going to. I'm not like sleep like sleep, sitting on my laurels here, you know. No, I know. I'm, I'm, fuck, I really want to see that. Now, talking about TV, TV is interesting because I mean, TV's been better than movies for years. That's, and I think that's just a fact, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I don't know how you can even debate that. Um, but it's an interesting year because my pretty much my entire top ten list last year for TV, those shows are not on the air this year either because they're taking a year off, like Doctor Who. It looks like The Leftovers will be taking a year off before its final season, which airs, um, probably won't be out until 2017. So there's things like that. Yeah. Or shows ended like Mad Men and Parks and Rec. So pretty much everything on my list is new stuff. And that's pretty incredible. Now, my number one show of the year so far is probably Better Call Saul, which is, it's in its second season. So it's not an old show, but it's, and I guess it's part of an overall franchise with Breaking yeah. Bad. But, I mean, Better Call Saul this year just... Man, the story that was told that season, the artistry that went into that season, phenomenal. Just phenomenal season of TV. And um, even if you were, I don't know, I know you don't like Breaking Bad as much as the world at large, maybe. Sure, but I like it a lot. But you like it a lot. I think you'll be one of the people like me who likes Better Call Saul even more when you wind up seeing this. It's such a good show. Anyway, um, and my other number one of the year so far would be a new one, though, and that is uh, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. Which is the show, if you don't know, Samantha Bee was the longest serving correspondent on The Daily Show. She was always one of my favorites. She had the best correspondent pieces when she would go out in the field. She was so good at that. And finally has her own show. And it is the best of the current... We are in the golden age of late night stuff. Like, you have so many good shows. There's Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. There's uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Those are probably the two best right now. But you've also got... Uh, the Daily Show and The Nightly Show, I know a lot of people are down on those. I think they're still really good, and I think Trevor Noah is doing a better job at The Daily Show than he gets credit for, in part because he has a really good team of correspondents. Like, by the end of Jon Stewart's run, it was pretty anemic. I think he's built it back up, and it's a really good team right now, even though Jessica Williams just left, which is sad. Hmm. Um, so you have those two. You have uh, Late Night with Seth Meyers, which is not getting enough attention. His political pieces are phenomenal. And I don't know if you ever see those. No, no, I've never seen that one. He's, I, and I, I had not, I knew Seth Meyers was on SNL, but I never really watched SNL, so he's kind of new to me. Um, but I think he's really good. And he's also a really good interviewer. He's does probably the best of the current late night crop. Um, people like Jimmy Fallon are good too, but I think of them as a little different because they're more on the just fun, let's have... Yeah, it's like fun. more entertainment yeah. side than like yeah. the political stuff. Yeah. You got James Corden becoming a viral god. Which yeah. we love James Corden here because yeah. he was on Doctor Who. Exactly, it's one of the reasons why I find it actually kind of hard to watch his stuff. Yeah, because I can't not think about Matt Smith while I'm watching. Right, it. Uh, I think Stephen Colbert's show has a lot of problems, but in moments it can be really good. Yeah, like it's it's a good show to follow on YouTube for every once in a while. There's a good bit, but yeah, yeah. it doesn't like. Yeah, it has not like like I don't think he has taken to that format quite yet. No, um, but just the I'm probably forgetting some, but there's so many good ones. Full Frontal with Sam B is better than all of them. The um, She only does one show a week. It's 20 minutes. It's not even, you know, when uh, John Oliver does it, he gets 30. Yeah. She gets 20 on TBS. And the amount she packs into those 20 minutes, it's amazing. It is just her personality unleashed. It is this kind of 
righteous fury mixed with intense intelligence and research but also this wit where just every line every punch lands so hard and it's very funny but it's also even more so than like vintage daily show or john oliver's show it's sobering and it makes you angry because she talks about things that some are you know we know about how awful ted cruz is and things like that when she talks about that but then she'll get into she did this whole piece earlier this year on um diapers for families and like how that's something that we don't think about it why are diapers taxed and things like that and why do we not provide assistance for poor families who have babies they should probably not have to pay for something as simple as diapers because if you don't have those pretty tough to raise a child yeah so like just pieces like that that she gets into that no one else is doing frankly because no one else is a woman in late night and she's the only one and so there's pieces like that that she can do but also just so many things she still does pieces where she's out in the field like she did on the daily show and those are still absolutely tremendous she did this one where they went to the libertarian convention okay and oh my god i mean and we all heard the stories that the libertarian convention was crazy but she has this way of interviewing people where i don't know why people trust sam b and say horrible things to her but they do and she just gets these it's like crazy people talking and she gets it there she did a whole she's done some fantastic nra pieces that is another one that i will have to decide at the end of the year whether that or maybe better call saul or another show later on this list are number one because it is an incredible example of the format it's working in and a lot of people are sad she did not get the daily show and i think she would have been a great fit i honestly think it's even better that she gets to do her own thing and make a name um outside of that brand that really i think the truth is they should have just retired when john stewart was done because the biggest thing working against trevor noah is it says the daily show and people just associate that with john stewart and Mm -hmm. he is not john stewart and i don't think that's a bad thing yeah Obviously, because there are no such things as clones in this world. Or but, are there? So anyway, there's that. Um, Game of Thrones just finished its sixth season. And I keep trying to find ways to argue myself out of just admitting it was probably the best season they've ever done. Because it probably was. Mm-hmm. There were, out of said, ten episodes. There were probably six that are pretty much perfect episodes of Game of Thrones. Just back to front. That is a show, because of the number of characters and locations... It's just kind of inherently a little up and down. Individual episodes will have lots of scenes you love and then some you just kind of suffer through. And kind of like, I don't know, an episode of Dragon Ball Z with filler. Sure, know? yeah, yeah. Um, but Game of Thrones this year had an awful lot of episodes where I just loved every single scene. And there was one subplot this year I hated, but there have been other seasons where there have been more than one I hated. So there you go. And the finale was probably the best episode Game of Thrones has ever done. And the, there are several others that would be in contention for that title so this was a goddamn good season of tv cool. and it's good to see game of thrones because game of thrones season five its previous season was by far its worst and so that's a really nice creative rebound for them and it, it's it's nice to know that that season was kind of just a blip and not the new normal or anything sure so that was great um supergirl has had a great year so far in the back half of its first season if for nothing else it gave us the gif of Kara eating ice cream after the Flash delivered it to her. Yeah. That's a pretty great gift. It is a very high quality gift, yes. Absolutely. Um, let's see. Uh, there's some shows I have to catch up on, but from what I've seen, they're good. Um, the People vs. O.J. Simpson, which I saw in full. Great show. Um, great kind of, you know, dr- dramatized retelling of that trial. Yeah. And it's phenomenally acted, very well written, great perspective on context and history. And there are, there's one episode that season that I would put um, up with the best episodes of TV this year, which is um, 
the one where basically they're going through the tapes of Mark Furman, who was the cop who arrested OJ and turned out to be like a KKK racist. And the like the thriller aspect of that episode is they're trying to figure out how to admit that into evidence is as tight and tense an episode of TV as I've seen this year. But possibly better than all of the things I just mentioned is something I'm still working my way through. I haven't had time to finish it. But it's the ESPN documentary, OJ Made in America. Right, yeah. For some reason, a lot of OJ this year. But this yeah, is a... like crime, like real-life crime drama has been on like a big uptick in the past couple of years. Yes. And OJ Simpson is obviously like that is the most public yeah. one of those of the past couple of decades. Yeah. So if you're confused about the difference between these two shows, The People versus OJ was the FX show. It's a dramatization. Uh, doesn't mean it's a fictionalization, just it's not a documentary. Yeah. O.J. Made in America is a seven and a half hour documentary film, and it really is just one long film. It was split into five parts on ESPN. Because nobody's going to sit down and watch seven and a half hours yeah. in one go. Although, they did put it out in theaters in New York and L.A. to qualify it for Oscars. So you could have done it, and it could, and the Oscars should nominate it, because it's, there's not going to be a better documentary film this year. But it could, you could have a seven and a half hour Oscar winner this year if you wanted it's like, did they not even have the common courtesy of throwing a couple of intermissions into that motherfucker? I'm, I'm sure there is, but... Because there has to be. Like, yeah. that That feels like that would be illegal at some point. Yeah. It's just straight up against the law. Like, people die watching this movie because yep. they can't go to the bathroom. But anyway, it aired in five 90-minute chunks on ESPN. I've watched the first one, and I need to get back and finish it. Um, but from what I saw, I mean, that that's like the best 90 minutes of TV I've seen this year. It is a cool, phenomenal yeah. documentary. Um, and whereas the FX show is really just the trial and it's about, it's not really about OJ, it's about the lawyers and stuff. This show, it's really about America and it's about yeah, the American the cultural dream. moment we the, had. Yes. But viewed through the prism of OJ and it's about race. It's about class. It's about the myth of upward mobility in this country. It's, it's kind of about two myths. It's about the myth of upward mobility and it's about the myth of a post-racial America. Right. And that OJ is this fascinating figure who really did live the American dream. He came from nothing and became the most celebrated person in our country at that moment. Yeah. And then when the trial came, he was part of what proved that we were not in post-racial America. Yeah. Because even the most beloved black man among whites was, became a demon in that moment. And he did kill the person, yeah. so that's bad. He's a murderer, but... But, you, you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. it, that, that cultural schism was so intense. And so what I've seen of the documentary so far doesn't even get into the trial. It's about his football career and things. But the way it intersects all these different parts of American culture and, and all the footage it uses, and it's got interviews with everybody and just with fans and people who were on the ground at the time, it is fascinating, it is involving, it is invigorating. It is a great piece of documentary art. And um, once I'm finished with it, that will be up there, and I'm excited to to see that. Yeah. So if you haven't seen that yet, you know it was on ESPN. Now you can get it on iTunes and stuff. And yeah, and that, nice. that has been on my list of things that I do want to watch. Is like like yeah. I don't have where out of reason. Like I'm not particularly interested in the dramatized version, but the documentary I'm very curious about. Yeah, and and you know it it does show me some of the things that the documentary did very well, and some things it did poorly mm -hmm. because. Um, one of the few missteps of the FX show is their casting of O.J. Simpson. They had Cuba Gooding Jr., and he gives a good performance, but he unfortunately looks nothing like O.J. Simpson. Right. He's like two feet shorter. Yeah, he does yeah. not have the build. O.J. was this big guy who was very kind of soft and eloquently spoken, and that's a big part of the documentary, and Cuba doesn't really play him that way, and it's... It's a problem if you know anything about the real O.J., which I really didn't when I watched the FX show, and part uh -huh. of what I love about this is... It's fun to see the documentary. I mean, fun's the wrong word. But I've only known OJ in my life, obviously, as the 
double homicide murder. Yeah, like both of us, like our cultural context for it is like post-trial. Yeah, but that's one of the great things the documentary gives you is the illustration of, well, why was he the figure he was? And you realize he was this intensely inspirational, aspirational figure um, for both black and white Americans. And what did that mean at the time? And that's a, that's something that has been lost to time, but you have to know to know the story. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so just lots of great TV shows. There's a couple I have to catch up Wait, on. Wait, but if that's... So would you put that on your movie list or your TV show list then? If, it, if it's up for the Oscars. It's also going to be up for Emmys. It is a TV production too. Is that even... You can't you do can, that. No, you can do that. It's, what, are they just going to throw some songs in it so they can fucking win a musical award too? <laughs> you can't fucking do that shit. That happens. Grammys and Oscars have shared nominees all the time. There's, there's a movie score category. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. But like the Emmys and the Oscars... It has seems... happened. It, it, it's rare, but that can happen because, and in cases like this where ESPN or PBS or someone, if they air a documentary, if it's also a film and gets theatrical release, you can do both. That's but no, this up. is a good question. I think I'll just keep it on the TV list because that is its primary, and that's what I'm watching is the five-part version. Sure. Um, but it's a good, maybe that will just be my movie top ten also, is I'll just say... This just is my... put it on both lists the way it's going to get an Oscar and an Emmy. Yeah, it's my number one for both, and we can just say that. Because it sure, might yeah. be at the end. I mean, it is it is better than any movie I've seen this year, too. I just, and again, I'm not finished so, with are it. Are you but... sure you want to commit to that? I mean, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice had its extended cut just come out. Okay, can we talk about that for a second? That a second look, Jonathan. While we're on tangents. Sure. I want to quit. Stop saying it makes the movie better. I don't care. And, like... <laughs> It has to. Because it, has it can't to. fucking make it worse. Like That's my point, is that, yes, okay, they explain some the plot holes and stuff. That's great. It's a three-hour movie. Yeah. You To explain, like, I read through all the changes, and to me it sounds like it would be even worse because some of it's like, yeah, okay, now I understand the whole Africa thing. Why was the Africa thing necessary to make Batman fight Superman? Yeah. Tell me that. No, you can't, because that's not part of the extended cut, because it's just bad storytelling. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, yeah, it's like, it is just like, the way that people are so desperate to, like, have this movie be... And I get it at some point, because I'm a big fan of Batman, and I'm a big fan of Superman. And I feel like, there's you have to be at a certain point in your fandom to be the kind of person that, like, this movie insults your fandom, or for it to, like, be like, I need to salvage this movie for me as a person... And so it's like, I understand some of that impulse, but it's like, dude, like, even if it does make the movie a little bit better, like, I don't fucking care. Because I'm never going to watch it again. The plot wasn't bad because of those holes. It was just a bad plot. Yeah, it was worse because of the holes. But yeah, like, it's like, that movie has fundamental issues that adding a little bit of extra footage is not going to fix it. No, you're clarifying something shitty. It's Mm -hmm. like... If you had a really shitty restaurant and you got a really shitty meal and they put some basil on the side as garnish, that doesn't make the food better. Yeah, or it's like if you take a picture of a pile of dog shit and it's a little bit out of focus, but then like you you clean it up in After Effects and like you bring it into focus and it's nice, clear, high definition, like five megapixel image of a pile of dog shit. I'm still looking at a pile of motherfucking dog shit. I don't want to do that with my day. Exactly. Well, besides Batman v Superman, I've enjoyed a lot of art this year. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, it's been particularly a good year for games. I mean, I've said this before. I think the last time a year in games had this many kind of landmark moments was 2007. 
This sure, is, yeah. I, and I think the previous one that was still really great for me was 2013, because that's where we had like Bioshock Infinite and Last of Us and Gone Home and some other indie games and yeah. stuff. Um, but just when you think of like the sheer depth and breadth of the year, I think you have to go back to 2007 to have something as quite as big as 2016 is. Yeah, and then especially like looking t- forwards as we did earlier in the podcast to what is coming out oh, ahead. Yeah. Like, like there are several of those games like Final Fantasy XV, No Man's Sky, The Last Guardian that if like they live up to their potential will be competitive at the top of the, the game of the year list. You know? Yes. So, yeah. So it's, a, it's been an interesting year. Yeah. In, a, in a lot of different ways. <laughs> in a lot of different ways. A lot, a lot of different ways. But hey, you know what? We can always go back and we can play some Doom. Some fucking Doom. <laughs>